This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international programme of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. My name is Clara Cook and I'm one of your hosts. What you're about to hear is a very special episode made up of live recordings of interviews, reactions and thoughts of podcasters, writers and Star Trek stars. All of this was recorded at the Destination Star Trek convention in October 2018 in Birmingham at the NEC in the UK. I'll be popping up from time to time to lead the way through these audio treats but in the meantime, here's an introduction from my fellow co-host, Duncan Barrett. So, I am here in the National Exhibition Centre in Birmingham, UK, for the Destination Star Trek convention. And I'm here with uh, two very special people. I've got Tony Robinson from Continuing Mission and producer of Melodic Treks. And I've got Lee Hutchison, formerly host of the network and now over on the Nerd Party. And we're sitting here in the press room. We've just got our press passes and looking forward to an exciting weekend. Yeah, very exciting. Who are you going to talk to, Duncan? Uh, Clara and I are going to be interviewing Nicole Dubur later today. And um, Jeffrey Coons. Jeffrey Coons. And I'll be chatting with Ira Stephen Bear and David Sapone. Sapone? I suppose. You'll find so out. You better learn that before. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, Mr. Sapone, it's Japoni. Oh, all right. Maybe Thank just you. stay with Dave. Get yeah. out. Yeah, sounds good. And what about you guys? What are you looking forward to most about the weekend? Having fun, meeting all the people. Hey, I was in the hotel this morning and Wilson Cruz was walking by, but I saw him as a dot in the distance, like mm-hmm. a speck on the horizon. But immediately I went, I'm on Discovery, there's the doctor. <laughs> He didn't, didn't catch him brushing, brushing his teeth in the lobby. Then, he so wasn't. Nice maybe moment. it was Mirror Doctor. Ah, okay. yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, yeah, but he's instantly recognisable. Not just because he's visually recognisable, but because he has that walking gait of his. He has a very kind of straight laced kind of walk, mm-hmm. and you'd identify him immediately. So that was a. It was a nice treat. What about you, Lee? Um, you I think it's to? great that like, pretty much nearly all of the Discovery cast is going to be here. Um, I was just at the London Film Festival and Shazid Latif was there, mm-hmm. so that was exciting. Um, and obviously Chris Pine was there, but it feels like with a lot of these 
conventions in the UK that it's mostly like same old faces or you know things like that. So it's quite nice that like pretty much the entire Discovery cast, including Jason Isaacs, you know, gone but not forgotten, is here. So it kind of makes it feel like a bit of a big dog event. But for me, it's going to be the what we've left behind documentary. Mm. I'm excited to see that yeah, in a, in a cinema screen to see yeah. that HD footage. And you know, I think. I mentioned it to you earlier, my favourite thing about the next generation Blu-rays wasn't seeing these amazing high quality video images, but it was like the documentaries, getting the cast back, hearing what they had to say with 25 years, 30 years, um, kind of looking back on it. So I'm excited to see this Deep Space Nine documentary and I'm, I'm so excited. I think it'll be a great weekend to catch up with people and, and see where we go. The bit of that documentary I'm most excited about is the writers room yeah. for season eight, getting all the writers back together and kind of... Um, plotting out where they would go, you know, if they were going to bring this series back yeah. nowadays. And who knows, you know, with CBS All Access, it's not entirely impossible. Well, if they're like bringing Captain Picard back, mm-hmm. why not bring... Why not? Bring the emissary out of the wormhole. Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's the main thing. I want to know what's happened to him. You know, I've been waiting 20 years to find out. I think you'll get people that say, well, there's the well answer that question. You'll get people that say, well, there's the books, there's the books. But I don't, I don't read the fiction books. No. They, they hold no appeal to me. They could say... yeah. Cisco comes back and lives happily ever after it means nothing yeah. to me. To yeah, but the universe, the universe still exists. These people still exist. Just because a series ended, they, they probably went on Deep Space Nine, they probably went, great, the cameras have gone, right, let's get down to business. Mm-hmm. You know, where's the key to the wormhole? Well, what I would love, if nothing else in the Picard series, is just like an offhand line from you know, one Bajoran to another saying, oh, well, you know, it's, it's like five years ago when the emissary returned from yeah. the wormhole. Yeah. So just something that kind of lets you know that that storyline yeah. kind of came to a close in one way or another. But then I'd be frustrated if it was just a throwaway line, like you came back. I'd rather I'd rather they do it or not do it at all. Really? Kind no, of thing. Yeah. no, what you, what you mm. want is what you want is somebody like Kira uh, coming out of the sonic shower and looking around and going... <laughs> You're writing slash fiction now, are you? It was all a dream. I think he's, he's rewriting Dallas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's always the well, Dallas. you know, that's how you can ask Ira Stephen Bear about this. This is how he wanted to end DS9, right? He wanted to say that the whole thing was Benny yeah. Russell's yes. dream. Yes, yeah. Uh, and in my view, fortunately, he was overruled until he wasn't allowed to do that. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm kind of glad that he didn't do that. Yeah. I mean, it's a bold move. Imagine but, the internet you know, nowadays yeah. Yeah, reacting to that. But yeah. I suppose we'll have this press conference soon with all the actors and talent there so that could be a question there you go yeah 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 Yeah. Yeah, absolutely well we're looking forward to a great weekend ahead we'll be back recording throughout the weekend but um tony and lee thanks for joining us and we look forward to having a great time we'll see you guys later the interviews you're about to hear are with nicole de burr jeffrey coombs iris stephen bear chase masterton and nana visitor these interviews were conducted by myself duncan barrett lee hutchinson host of The Nerd Party, and Carlos Miranda, who writes for Trek News. So we're here with Nicole Dubois. It's fantastic uh, to have you with us. Um, I just wanted to ask, first of all, we haven't yet seen the DS9 documentary, though some of us are going to see it this evening. But I gather from some of the advanced material that, uh, because they talk about what might happen in a kind of hypothetical season eight, Esri is in there as a captain. I know in some of the novels, Esri been promoted to captain. She has this kind of off-screen future. She, sorry, you saw that I was in the. You saw promos the, that showed that I was a captain. Yeah, in a cartoon, an animated session. Is that wrong? Well, maybe we'll find out. Maybe it's a spoiler. <laughs> but anyway, I'm just curious. You only got one season on yeah. Star Trek compared to you know a lot of the guys who got six or seven or yeah. more. Do you feel like you have any kind of unfinished business with Esri, or is that kind of oh, a door that's closed sure. for you? I mean, I am ready to 
come on the new show as Esri now. I think that that makes sense. Plus, I'm from Toronto and that's where they're shooting it. So, well, there you go. It yeah. makes yeah. perfect sense to me to see where she's at now. I would love to continue playing her at this point because she wasn't ready to be joined and it was it was a lot for her and so now all these years later it would be really cool to see this character at this point. Yeah, so I would love that. And to be a captain. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have to be a captain, I just want to be on the damn show. <laughs> it's cool to be a captain. Let's it be, would be, cool. be cool to be a captain. It would be cool to be if it's not captain, it's gotta be up there. It's gotta be up there. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. And the captain dies. Yeah, then the captain yeah. dies. And then the captain. <laughs> Yeah. Um, for me, my question is sort of out with Star Trek that obviously you did Deep Space Nine, then you worked with Michael Pillar, who has a long association with Star Trek in yeah. Dead Zone, which is one of my favorite oh, shows. Really? I thought it was criminally underrated. Oh, thank um, you. Yeah. I want to know, like, what was it like working with Michael Pillar that he was someone that was so instrumental in making a Deep Space Nine, we've now kind of lost him. What was your experiences and memories of working with this, like, television genius? Oh, really, it's amazing. When I did Star Trek, I didn't really see him. He was on the lot working on, you know, I just never really met him much. I met him once briefly. And then when he did The Dead Zone, he asked me to audition because he liked my work as Ezra Dax and Deep Space Nine. And um, then getting to work with him, I actually spoke about it in the, in the documentary, but it unfortunately didn't make it into the doc. So again, there's just so much, you know, they had so much material and they could only, you know. Um, he was like a father figure to everyone kind of thing and such a smart man he wrote so well for female characters I felt like too like not making them too like this has to be a female but there was something there was a warmth that Michael had and yet in his writing and yet in real life he was a little more you know strict it was like it was like I wanted to make my my, my strict dad happy you know it, it felt like that in a way but he was um, yeah it's really sad that, that he's gone and you know his son continues continues yeah. on and I'm doing a show right now with him in Canada called Private Eyes uh, Sean Pillar has basically become a Canadian he does a Haven he shot yeah. Nova Scotia and you know, Private Eyes and he finished doing the rest of the Dead Zone and took over the helm He's an amazing producer in his own right. Okay, thank you. So going back to a second to Deep Space Nine, so I was interested, kind of curious that, so like Jadzia was one of my favorite characters yeah. growing up. Jadzia was amazing, yeah, right? Yeah, great character. And then you all of a sudden you're like, oh, they're going to replace Dax. And you're like, well, you know, and I remember when it was, it was kind of pre-internet days, I was like, I don't know, maybe 15 years old when all of this happened. And you're like, okay, this is a character going to come in. And you came in and, and did such a very different character to yeah. Jadzia. But it was like you kind of fell in love with that character immediately and you accepted her immediately. But what kind of kind of instructions were you given or direction were you given kind of coming into it? Because it was so it was it was the last season, you know? And and I'm just kind of curious, what did they tell you how to right. play the act, like to play this character? I have to say, even when I hear the word replace, it makes me feel weird. You know, no, what no, I mean? enough, yeah. Um, um yeah, because and also, I just didn't even know. I, I did watch TNG, but I never did watch Deep Space Nine. Yeah. And there was a whole reason because I had a boyfriend who auditioned for Best Year, and he didn't get the part. And we were <laughs> like, well, screw that show. We're not going to watch that show. So I hadn't watched it, which was kind of a blessing because I think I would have been way more nervous yeah. had I watched it. And what they said to me was, it all happened very quickly. The audition, the call, the call that I, the audition was a tape I sent in. They flew me down. 
I got the part, you know, I found out right away. And then I had to come in and get my wardrobe and get on set. And it was like being hung, you know? It was like, boom, 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 go. And so I didn't have too much time, which was also, I think, a blessing. They gave me some tapes back then, it was VHS tapes to watch, um, some specific ones like the pilot and a couple of other ones. Um, and I tried to absorb that. But they said, remember, you're, although you have all these other lives in you, Esri doesn't know really how to juggle it. So yeah. that, that also helps me, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, but they said, you're mostly Esri, you know? You're not Jadzia, you're a, you're a whole new character, Esri, and that's who you're playing. So I didn't really think of it as replacing or anything like that. It was a new character, and that's kind of what they told me. You know, and they said as we go along in the writing, you'll you'll see what to do. But basically, you're you're going to come in and be as, which is a new character for us. And I have to say, just when I read it, the first time I had the audition, like as an actor, you read stuff and you and sometimes I go, oh, that's not me. I just don't feel it. I don't see myself in that role. As soon as I read it, I was like, that's my part. I, I know how to do this. <laughs> and because I had watched Star Trek, I, I was like, I know how to be on Star Trek. I know how to be a Star Trek character, and this is my character. Amazing. You know, it's just yeah. magic. It just all worked. Yeah. So I luckily came in feeling really good about it. Yeah. It's amazing, I think, that in one season you were able to flesh out, really flesh out this character. By the end, you were just, you know, you, you, for very different reasons, you just, you just love Ezri as well. So Thank you for saying an that. Amazing character. Thank you. So the question I had was, there's a lot of talk now about how the women on Discovery are these powerful, yes. strong female characters, yeah. but what struck me was that Esri was one of these characters that came before, that she's quite <laughs> underestimated. Yes, yeah. Um, but I watched an episode recently for our podcast in which she but like, is the counsellor to Garrick, mm -hmm. who's a very difficult person to yes. provide any support to. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to know, have any sort of female fans come to you and asked you and sort of, or, or talked to you and said that you, they found you inspiring as a strong female character? Oh, for sure. I mean, from the beginning, I, I that was so surprising and nice to, to have people write to me and say how inspirational I've been or gotten them through hard times or going through an awkward time or a hard time in their life and they really look to Esri for they it helped them get their find their own strength within them and that was so touching and amazing to hear and then I went I guess it would yeah I can see that that's wonderful you know and 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 then even now more recently I'm starting to see another another thing in recent years which is um, trans people saying that they're and I'm like of course I never really thought about that before too because of course she's been a man she's been a woman she, you know it's whatever and then love is love and then one time you're in this body next time you're in this but it's all and I think that's really interesting too you know because here she is coming into this situation they remember her as something else now she's a whole other person and I'm just like wow yeah that's a really cool thing to think about you know so Yes, yes, I have, I have heard that. And also going back and watching it recently, I forget how confident Esri really was in certain ways. You know, I keep thinking that she was all messed up, but she was, but she, she was confident too. And she grew into her own more and more. And that's why I think it would be really cool to see her now, you know. And you've got the example in Discovery of the counselor who's become an admiral as well. So they've kind of, I guess with Troy, they sort of 
they got to that right towards the end of next gen they started kind of promoting her and putting her in the uniform so taking her more seriously as an officer but now we've kind of established yeah you know you can start as a counselor and kind of I jumped right up to the lieutenant right away. That was yeah. pretty cool. And I always bugged Garrett Wang about that because yeah. he was always an ensign. And I was like, I got promoted in like a couple episodes or whatever. It's like, oh, cool. <laughs> but you know, it's funny that, I'm sorry, I just really quickly, it's funny that you say that because you do think of Ensign originally as kind of like, like she didn't want to be joined, and obviously she's joined, yeah. and she's a little bit confused. But um, I think we were talking about this not that long ago. That's there is a scene in, in a later episode where you basically tell Worf that, Worf. You, that you think that yes, the that speech. I mean, like, yeah. like, like I just rewatched that recently. That, that is that is not like, like you know. The, you, it does take confidence yeah. to say to Worf, and obviously there is a whole you were kind of married and all of that. Yeah, yeah. But still, yeah. like you know, there is there is a, there is a kind of a quiet strength in Ezri. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, that is, I think, sometimes I'll overlook, but that speech in particular. Yeah, thank yeah, you for yeah. saying that. Yeah, thanks. Sorry, yeah. I was just curious. I think it's about 20... Well, they yeah, well, that's fair <laughs> Great speech. The delivery. You delivered it, though. The delivery was amazing. You sold it. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's pretty much bang on 20 years, right? I think I now, since you started on DS9. I'm just curious, how have your feelings about Star Trek and about Esri changed in the course of that time when, you know, you've had so much going on in your own life and so on, right. but yet you're coming back to these conventions and kind of re-engaging with that Well, it's piece never of left past. me because I do do the conventions, you know, and I'll at least do maybe two a year. Um, so all these years, it's never left me and it never will. And I never want it to leave me. I'm so proud of it, you know? Um, but yeah, I've gone on to do other shows, and, and um, but because of the conventions, it's always it's always with me, and I'm always talking about Star Trek, and um, you know, I love the character more and more. And then as I'm getting to, I'm going back and watching the episodes I hadn't seen before because I hadn't watched the show, and then you know, appreciating like, when, wow, I love Kira. She's that's my favorite character <laughs> now, you yeah. know and getting to know them better over the years so it just grows and grows my feeling for the whole for all of it and now discovery too and you've got these new actors coming on and for whatever anybody says about it, i mean these actors are so lovely and they're in there loving being part of star trek too and they're working so hard and i enjoy the show i mean i really enjoy it but it's this big star trek family that's really special to be part of and i'm just like super honored and happy to be Part of it, you know? For most people, uh, your, well, your first appearance of as Esri was when they got to know you, but for a chunk of sci-fi fans, it was Q. Yeah, um, it's like yeah. one of the best original kind of sci-fi movies. Had spin-offs. I think it was even a TV series eventually. But um, was it? Oh my been, I, if not, I will. At least that. three of them. <laughs> yeah, there at least was. three of the films. Yeah, there were several movies. What was it like working on on Cube? You had like a great cast of people, like, even like David Hewlett, yeah. who wrote things like Stargate, for example. What was it like being on Cube and the experience? Did you expect it to become the cult film that it was? Well, I didn't know it would become such a, a hit. It was one of these small films that came out of the Canadian Film Centre, and they choose one person each year, and they get a budget of two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. <laughs> to make their little indie film and Vincenzo Natale got it that year and I just thought his writing that that script was amazing and um, auditioned and and got the part and it was great and then I was like oh yeah I'm with David because I'd worked with David before Um, but it was grueling because it was only it was literally just that cute that was the set and you're squished in there with the camera and the boom guy and um, 
a friend of mine passed away right before we started shooting so it was a I remember it being pretty tough you know but that was okay I used it you know it's like okay you got to use all this because that's what they're going through they don't know what the hell they're doing in this cube it's crazy um, so it was a little tough and we only did it in like 16 days shot the whole thing um, so that hats off to them they made it look fantastic and and then on top of it we got some free um, from core CGI was donated their services which made it look so much better than two hundred fifty thousand dollars know. of course all that went to my salary <laughs> not we were it was one of those deals with the union where you get paid in at the back end yeah. you get a little bit up front um, and you get paid and nobody ever sees that money but because the film did so well we all got checks and we were like wow it's amazing yeah did really well thank you so much for asking about that well, so I feel like I, I jumped the queue so you should, you should go um, so this is going to sound like a strange question but I'm not an actress and I have no acting experience okay. um, so I actually saw Cube as a young teenager and it really really frightened me and I wondered <laughs> and your performance was really really good you seemed really frightened um, just a cur out of curiosity, is it actually sometimes frightening, or are you actually entirely acting the entire time? Like, is, when you're filming a TV yeah. series or a when film? scary? Okay, yeah. you know what you have to say. This is a classic, Prom Night 4. I am the star of Prom Night 4, old school horror movie, right? That's old school, where I'm the virgin, so... It's kind of streaming on someone's Netflix yeah, yeah. in the hotel. Oh <laughs> my god, it's so bad, yeah. good, you know? Yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> And I was really scared because I get scared. I don't go see horror films. I don't like to be scared. I used to be scared when my mom played this game with me where she'd hold our dog back and I'd run around the kitchen and she'd let him go and I'd be like, oh my God, he's right on my tail. And I would get scared just doing that. <laughs> so yes, I really get scared in the moment if something, you know, all the lighting's down and it's creepy. I mean, you are being filmed. Still, I'm being filmed, like... but I'm like, I'm actually really scared right now. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, I thought I thought maybe in Cube that was the case because you did such a good job. That is, that was more psychologically scary. So I was just totally acting, and that was brilliant acting. <laughs> it's good acting. Um, but in Prom Night Four, I'm actually scared. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us, Nicole. It's thank been a pleasure you. talking to you. Thanks, guys. Thanks thank you. Enjoy your adventures. You guys even know who I am. You're the guy from Reanimator yeah. too, or something. Don't know who I am. Um, yeah, so do you want to go first? No, no, you, you go, go first, you go first. Um, so obviously it's obviously 25 years since Deep Space Nine's come along and you have this huge impact as you were basically a guest star but for most people they consider you a regular character, you were on so many series. How do you feel 25 years on from Deep Space Nine to all these different characters you played? You know, you're not just wearing your brunt, your guest stars in this episode and that episode? How do I feel? Well, I would never have imagined that 25 years later there would be such uh, incredible enthusiasm and uh, uh, just, I mean, look at this place. It's packed with the people that Star Trek means so much to. I, it always humbles me. You know, I get in line with people and they're literally quivering with excitement. <laughs> Not because of me, but because they're in the midst of people that mean so much to them, you know? I, I, I don't know. It's pretty overwhelming, if you want to know the truth. It's kind of hard to wrap your head around it a little bit, but I'm grateful for it. 
And if you find that with a lot of your characters, that you know, even like the animator as well, it's a character that people are still associating with talking about. They remake it, there's stage right. plays. And yes, I mean, the the, 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 the the little movie that I did with a small R, low budget, no one's ever going to see this. You, you, it, it's really difficult for you to process that uh, it's blows up into sort of iconic status for people, you know, and then they expect me to be like Herbert West, which I'm not. For our listeners, you're not wearing a lab coat. Oh, yes. you know, when I when, when I would come home from shooting Reanimator, I, had, I actually had a little black cat at home. And so it, during the day, I'm, I'm like destroying cats, and, uh, and then I come home and, hello, You'll never believe what I did today. <laughs> it's a strange uh, business that we're in, but thank you. I guess one of the reasons that you have featured so much in Star Trek is that you're one of those actors who can play very different parts and have that kind of chameleonic quality. Chameleonic. <laughs> did you just say that? I love that. Chameleonic. <laughs> you can put that on your CV if you yeah. like. <laughs> is it something that you kind of... Does it just come naturally from the script, or are you kind of thinking, how am I going to differentiate this character, or how am I going to kind of build this character to really realise each one of those into a very different person? Actually, it's a mixed bag. For one, preparation, and by that I don't mean preparing to play this role, I mean preparing to be an actor in the first <laughs> place. Uh, uh, by the time I came to Star Trek, I had quite a bit of, well, training, done a lot of theatre, uh, uh, which requires a lot of versatility, and that, that was one of the things that was uh, kind of implanted in me very early: is diversity is survival for an actor. Certainly true in the theater. Um, you, you find in film and television, maybe not so much. Uh, a lot of actors are personas, and they're the same every time you see them. But I never really was much interested in that. Um, so Star Trek was a wonderful world to be able to continue to be diverse. So that's one aspect. The other is the ability to be chameleonic is that I had a support system around me that allows me to do that. Uh, you know, the difference between Shran and Wayun is so, so marked because I have production design elements that are supporting me and and I'm joined by Iris Steven and Iris Steven <laughs> gives me the stink eye and walks away <laughs> yeah you too yeah you too uh, I love that man. and and so that's another that's another key element to why I'm can be so different is because I, I just have help and and as far as deciding what to do, uh, you, you know, there's the cerebral part of it, and then there's just the instinct. Just to, to uh, sometimes there's no time to think about it. You just kind of you get there at three thirty in the morning with a new character you've never seen, and they throw this stuff on you so that you're ready at seven when everybody else comes, and maybe you have fifteen minutes to look in the mirror and go decision time. Mm -hmm. And so. You just kind of have to trust your your instinct, make some strong choices. So, um, my question might sound kind of strange, but you talked about the theatre, and obviously talked about what you talked about the theatre, and yes. obviously you, you explained that you've portrayed many different roles in the theatre. Right. But one of the things that 
a lot of people experience while working on Star Trek is the amount of prosthetics and makeup that yes. somebody has to wear. Yes. Does that make portraying the character harder or difficult or just actually, very different? Actually, it doesn't. It makes it, to me anyway, it makes it um, freeing. I'm free because it informs me. Um, much like, I guess, it, a, a layman's way of looking at it is if you wear cowboy boots and if you wear tennis shoes, you carry yourself differently. A, a different aspect of you comes to the fore. You put on a Halloween costume, you you embody that almost instinctually, like a kid putting on a towel and and, a, and, a, and has a you know a stick for a sword, and they feel complete, right? They, they they commit to it. So it's much the same like that. I also in my training, I went through a course called uh, mask work. I had a wonderful movement teacher, and and um, and he had all these various masks. Some of them were quite character, and some of them were very neutral. And so, putting on a mask as a Star Trek character, me was like, well, yeah, this is a continuation of what he he sort of taught me. Uh, I felt very comfortable with it. Some actors can't handle it. They're very get claustrophobic. They feel like they've lost themselves. They don't know how to uh, emote through it. They feel like it's completely covered them. And I, I, I've never really felt that way. I, I look in the mirror and say, oh, okay, I, I think I'll, I'm going this way with this one. That's the way it makes me feel anyway. So, Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks. Just to follow up from that and then really quickly. So you played so many different characters on almost every incarnation of Star Trek. Except the the first a hundred percent, a hundred percent. The the when you put they put on the makeup on you. How much direction did they give you? From how much did like Ira Burr say? Okay, well this character's going to be different, or did they just say, "Oh, this is Jeffrey. We know what he's doing. Just just do it." Yeah, you'd be surprised how little they give you. Yeah, and in a way, that's a uh, uh, that, that that's a nod of confidence yeah. that that I'll do it. Yeah. Uh, but in another way, I'm sort of like, um, yeah. well, okay, I better... Be an Andorian. How about a little help? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, there is the script. The script informs you of certain things. Okay. You know, being Shran, um, I saw sort of a, a military kind of uh, quality, which Wayun doesn't have at all. Okay. So. So you know there are there are touchstones that that, that can help you, but for the most part, no. There's nobody. Uh, when I first played Shran, I thought honestly that the director didn't like what I was doing at all. Uh, no notes, no feedback. Uh, I just thought, oh boy, I must I must blow chunks here because yeah. this is I'm, I'm not getting any. And the fact of the matter is. They were just busy with other things and okay. problems solved, so I don't have to even go there. Yeah. But I don't know. Right. Sometimes actors need a little reassurance. Right. I don't need my ego boosted. I just need to go. Need to hear. Yeah. You're. Yeah. You're on. You're good. You're in the zone. Stay there. And that's all we really need sometimes. But that doesn't mean you get it. Yeah. <laughs> so. Thank you very much for joining us. We really appreciate yeah, it and you. enjoy your weekend and all yeah. the yeah, yeah, yeah. Appreciate this round table. This is the way to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Can we take a picture with you? Sure, of yeah, course. Yeah, we, uh, 
I, I, I'll be interested to hear what you have to say after it's over. Cool. And we'll just go around. Do you want to start? Yeah. So, I mean, so obviously, you know, I grew up obsessed with Deep Space Nine. It was the first show. I was 12 when it aired. And it was the first show, the first Star Trek show. I was already obsessed with Star Trek. But it was the first show that I kind of got to watch from the beginning, right? What's it, you know, it's... I'd love to hear a little bit more about kind of the genesis of the uh, of the documentary. Like, why revisit it? Uh, was it just the anniversary? Like, talk to us a little bit about how that all came about and that kind of that original enthusiasm. Well, it all came about because in 2012 I had an opportunity to see Avery Brooks at a convention in Las Vegas, and for the past 13 years I had not been to a convention. But I had definitely been thinking about, if not obsessing about Avery Brooks, you know, and uh, he was the most fascinating man on a lot of levels that I ever worked with. And uh, I just got fascinated by the idea of what would happen if I met Avery again. And because I had no idea, he could have blown me off, he could have, you know, embraced me. I, I didn't know what Avery was, you know, you just don't know. So I went to the convention to see Avery, and uh, he hugged me for about five solid minutes. Now, think about that, five minutes. It got so uncomfortable after a while. <laughs> like, people were looking like, okay, this is getting ridiculous. This has to end. And uh, it was fantastic. It was great. He was in a great mood, and uh, it, was, it was a tremendous reunion. So I was in a, in a really, I was in a good place. And I was standing in the uh, convention hall, maybe the next day, and Dave Sapone came up behind me. And Dave had interviewed me, or Shatner, Bill had interviewed me for a bunch of docs. You know, the captains, the captains close up, yeah. uh, get a life, chaos on the bridge. So I knew these guys. And that's how I got friendly with Bill. Uh, so Zapone comes up behind me and goes, hey, let me ask you a question. We're thinking about doing the Deep Space Nine doc and Bill's not gonna do another Star Trek doc, you know? I mean, he's done three in a row or whatever it was and he's just not gonna do another one. So how would you like to be Bill Shatner and interview all the actors? No, I had never thought about doing a documentary in my life, nor did I know what it entailed, really. But I was in such a good mood and on such a high from seeing Avery and just being back amongst the fans and everything. I said yes right there without thinking. And that was 2012. And now we're in 2018, and you're waiting to see the film tonight. So. You gotta be careful what you say yes to. <laughs> For me, like, it's only come out in the UK this year, but this isn't the only film that you've been involved with this year. Uh, Lucky with Harry Dean Stanton came out in the UK this year. And it was one of the most, my favourite film of the year. I felt real emotional watching it. It reminded me of my grandfather and so many things. What was it like to work on that film? And, and what, what, what's your reflection on Harry Dean Stanton as an actor? Um, well, number one, I cannot tell you how much that movie meant to me and uh, how much I uh, 
I love that film, and I love working on that film. Um, it was it was it was pretty magical. Now I had known Harry briefly from Dantan is the restaurant where he and Dabney Coleman held court all those years. And there was a while where I was hanging out with them a little bit, enough to get the full Harry treatment um, and get to know him somewhat and the people around him. Anyway, I get a phone call out of nowhere from a guy who had been I had cast as an actor, then it would become my assistant when I was doing this TV show, Alphas, and then kind of disappeared from my life. And I get this call and he goes, hey, meet us at the Chateau, Chateau Montmartre. It's like, what? Chateau? Maybe at the coffee shop or at a pizza, we're going to the Chateau, what the hell's going on? He goes, just come. We, we want to pitch an idea to you. It's like, I'm like sitting at home at night. It's like, okay, this is sounds ridiculous. So I go there and it's John Carroll Lynch, who I also knew from back then. So I knew John. I knew Drago, who was my assistant, and Logan, who was Harry's assistant for 15 years. Bro, what the hell is going on? What the hell are we doing here in the lobby of the Chateau drinking Manhattans like we're like grown-ups? And it was like... These two knuckleheads wrote this film, and uh, they have Harry, obviously, and they have David Lynch, and John Carroll had never written, had never directed before. They had never written before, and Harry was going to be 90. So it's like we got to move forward on this fast. We got to raise the money. We got to get this movie made, like really fast and none of us know what the hell we're doing so we need someone who knows you want to do this you want to produce this movie for us and it's like okay so they uh, sent me the script I read the script I thought this is rice cakes there's nothing here it's there's no story there's nothing gotta give him a daughter gotta give the daughter cancer gotta get all these ridiculous <laughs> lame ideas went to sleep, woke up, said, okay, it's Drago. I gotta give Drago the benefit. So I read it again and I said, what am I thinking? This is, this is the opportunity of a lifetime. Now the script needed some work, for sure, uh, but it didn't need more plot, it just needed stuff. Uh, and I said yes, and it was, it was just an amazing, Thing, how it all came together and meeting money people and miss that and the other thing and you know getting this 19 day schedule together and having these meetings I wish we had filmed them in Harry's house every weekend and we would go over the script with him or we'd go over in pre-production we'd go over the script and just have talks then when we got into it closer we'd go over you know the week's work and of course, you know, he would be so obstreperous and arguing about the, it was all written about him. I mean, it was lines he had said, stuff I had heard him say. And it's like, why am I saying this? Why are you saying this? Because you said it. Because it's what you believe. No, 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 no. You know, why am I saying this? Why is Lucky saying this? 
and it was just it was an amazing thing and the cigarettes and the and the game shows on yeah. constantly so every time you gotta stop and watch the game shows and what's the question and do you know the answer and then we have like you know we're all making this movie he said because we're all in light right we're all in light like okay sure Harry I'm in light and Drago goes yeah, uh, okay, I'm enlightened. And Logan, of course, goes, yeah, I'm enlightened. And John Carroll Lynch goes, well, you know, I don't think I'm enlightened. Then why the F are we making this movie? <laughs> then if, you know, if you're not, it's like, John, what the hell, man? You know, just say you're enlightened, you know, so we could talk about it. So it was just, it was just amazing. And, 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 you know, we shot in the heat, in the, you know, up in, in uh, Piru, and all these plates, Sand Canyon, 120 degrees, and Harry's walking around smoking and 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 refusing to drink water, and uh, you know, all the times in, when we were at uh, Dantana's, I've never seen him eat. I've seen him drink. Uh, occasionally, he'd go, "Can I have?" I'd give him my uh, tomato, half a tomato off my plate, and he'd spend an hour cutting it up into a hundred pieces. Uh, but I never saw him eat a meal until we did the movie. When we did the movie and we had craft services, he actually ate a little bit. But uh, I, I love that movie. Thank I you love very that much movie. For, for bringing it and bringing uh, the turtle who's about to life and stuff like that. So it's honestly it was, such a brilliant movie. Yeah. Thank you. I, I think that movie has legs. I think that's a movie that people will discover, you know, as time goes on, more and more people will get behind that movie. It's a, it's a beautiful little film. Perfect. Thank you. Just coming back to Star Trek, one of the things that I love most about Deep Space Nine is I feel of all the Star Trek series, it feels like the one that's the most kind of committed to and connected to real world history in some ways. And I'm a historian by trade. Clara and I present a podcast all about uh, Star Trek and history. So we've, we've talked about the French Resistance, we've talked about recently the Attica Uprising in past tense and so on. And I was just wondering, as a writer and as the, you know, in the writing room, were you kind of specifically doing research into these kind of real world things I mean were you reading books about the Holocaust or about uh, French resistance or whatever it was or was that just all sort of in the background feeding into the stories you're writing would you go away and kind of look for inspiration in the real world to write these stories well when you're doing 26 a year you're looking inspiration everywhere right. in your heart in your life in, in events by the way I just read Blood in the Water the book on Attica that's an we amazing book I was, we were up in Skywalker doing the mix on the dock and I'm reading Blood in the Water. It was not the best time to yeah. be reading that book because that yeah. book broke my heart in a yeah. million pieces every five pages. It's, it's tough. Uh, but like for instance, Past Tense. Past Tense came about because Robert Wolf had said, you know, he wanted to do, he'd been talking about doing this show about the uh, underprivileged and, and the poor, and it was like, but what's the context? And I was out in Santa Monica, for some reason, out overlooking the ocean, and it's beautiful, this, you know, grassy walkway, and all these homeless people are lying there in the grass. Now, again, it's Santa Monica, if you're going to be homeless, it's not the worst place. But people were stepping over them like they were living sculpture. They were they were just ignored. I mean, it was, and I was watching this from afar, and that's when I went back 
on Monday and said, we're doing the show about homelessness because it was right there in my face at that moment. There was no way not to, to, to do a show about the homeless. It suddenly was in my, in, I, I couldn't ignore it. Uh, so that's how things came about. Far Beyond the Stars was some ridiculous story that was pitched to us about Jake uh, and, and, and these aliens who were putting him back in the 1950s with these sci-fi writers to see how human beings, and he was right. But, and we said no, we passed on that show. And then like a year later or six months later, I was in my car and I suddenly started thinking about, you know, I had read somewhere that Philip K. Dick was eating dog food at some point in his career because he couldn't make money off of his stories. And I'm thinking, and and C.L. Corn, whatever her name was, who was the female writer who had to use her initials to uh, in order to get published. And I thought of what would happen to an African American writer who had this great idea for this massive, you know. Uh, stories about this space station with a black captain and then, and then it just became that. So, I, I, you know, at the time I was not a big fan of issue-oriented TV because I felt it was preaching to the converted and it was an easy way to score points with an audience. I am not so happy we did those episodes because, of course, I was sadly mistaken because all those issues never go away. Racism never goes away. It goes underground for a while until it becomes okay to be a racist again, unfortunately, when you're the powers that be give you the permission to, for, the, for the weaker angels of our nature to come forward. Homelessness is now, it's, it's just off the charts what's going on in Los Angeles with the homeless. I really think that it's a plan. They're putting, there's so many homeless on the street, I think it's to get people to complain so they can start the sanctuary. I mean, it, there's something, that, that, you know, and in terms of the historical record, it is so broken in America that no one knows jack shit about anything about history from 10 years ago. Forget Vietnam or anything like that. Attica, they don't know what the freaking Attica is. They don't know what Dog Day Afternoon is. They don't know who Al Pacino is. They don't know who, you know, who, who the, walked on the moon, where there is a moon, you know, <laughs> where, where the, you know, what is the moon surrounded? I mean, it's, it's, it's pathetic. We, we, we live in a world where technology has given us access to everything, all human knowledge, and all people have no interest in knowledge because it's at their fingertips. They don't have to work for it. You talking about me? Yeah, yes, exactly. 100%. <laughs> Perfect. I'll be a good yeah, interview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Vaughn Armstrong, ladies and gentlemen. No, 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 no. Um, so, one of the characters in Deep Space Nine that I've always thought was a brilliant character was Gold Dukat because he's the villain, but he thinks he is the hero of the show. And it's almost like there could be an alternative Deep Space Nine where Dukat is like the Cisco character. And I want to know if that was a deliberate choice to make him somebody who was really a very complex villain who thinks he's doing what he's doing for the bet, like the good of his people, even the good of the Bajorans. Um, well, a lot of it had to do with. Mark Limo, who played it, as you said, as he was the hero of the show. We got a big kick out of that. I loved the character. Uh, what I did not love was the fan mail we were getting. I mean, women, people were drawing naked. You know, <laughs> it would be Gul Dukat in the Cardassian makeup from the neck up, and then there'd be these naked 
pictures of him with his junk hanging. There. Is this going to be the documentary? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No, oh, there's a lot about scene. there's a lot about Mark Alimo. Mark Alimo. <laughs> I think of all the actors is probably like the least happy with the doc, unfortunately. Uh, but but uh, he was a fantastic character. But I did not like the fact it's like women who marry uh, serial killers. Uh, you know, just because he had a daughter, and just because he Hitler liked children, so we forgive Hitler for what he did. But somehow the fans were just beginning to be too enamored of this son of a bitch and uh, you know I just refused it to to allow that guy to get off you don't kill 15 million people you don't, you're not part of that system a big part of that system and think you know you're okay because you you know you have a heart you know so ultimately I had a heart and Mark hated every time I called him a Nazi you know all he kept doing is he was following orders and he was a good soldier which is a freaking Nazi you moron but but so uh, I'm not one of those women by the way I'm not I'm not I just want to emphasize that he's an awful father character um, he 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 owned that stage when he was on that stage when he was the in in those dailies whenever uh, he made Avery step up his game any actor, just like Avery made the other actors step up their game. So yes, Gul Dukat, he's a good one. Thank you very much. Thank for you very much. Absolutely yeah. appreciate it. Hey, I got really quickly. Tell us the story of your Deep Space Nine ring. I just noticed it. Um, well, this was the ring we gave out as a gift. Is it okay to take a picture of it? Yeah. This was the true gift at the end of the of the show. Right. And because uh, we always gave out gifts, we gave out a. You know, uh, the, the uh, one year it was a uh, underpants with uh, a nine in the front and, and the wormhole coming out the back. Uh, we gave a Beavis and Butthead T-shirt for DJ's Nine, but this was the one. And inside, if I could get it off, it says, "Lest we forget," which was from the uh, John Wayne, John Ford film. Uh, she wore a yellow ribbon when they gave him the watch and his men as he's retiring from the army lest we forget and I and we headed it out to everyone and Barry Jenner who played Admiral Ross came over to me literally with tears in his eyes and he said my father and I used to watch she wore a yellow ribbon when I was a kid and he died and when when he saw that no one else seemed to know, but he looked inside, so unless we forget, he just broke out of tears. Like someone got it, Amazing. someone understood it. So I don't wear it all the time. I just wear it when uh, I, I do the interviews for the doc, which everyone should go see when they get a chance. Because it's good. <laughs> Well, thank you very thank much. You very thank much. you very much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Cheers. Thank you. 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 Lee from Filibuster, great. I'm Carlos from Trek News. Carlos from Trek News, of yeah, course, yeah, yes. Of course, 100%. There yeah. you go. And, yeah. You. Duncan says Trek FM. Great to meet you, Duncan. And what is it again? Trek FM. Trek FM. Clara and I host awesome. a show about kind of history and style Trek, basically. Oh, wonderful. For the inspiration of the artists. 
was great. Well, thank you all for having me. And all of these are hooked up, I guess? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. How wonderful. Um, how you doing? How, I'm well, thank yeah. you. How's your Star, Star Trek Birmingham? Yeah, it's only like just started, yeah. so we've had a good with, chat with you. We've, we've just been in here actually most of the day, which has been wonderful yeah. actually. Cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We've, we've well, been talking to like. Why not have us come to you? Yeah, like, it's easier. amazing. It's yes. like it's like a convention for us. It's it's, it's, it's just for you. It's like a private convention. Yes. It's amazing. Yes. Yeah. So we're just going to go home afterwards. Yeah, I'm, yeah, totally. Yes. So I wanted to ask you a question about um, Lita and Rom. Because I thought it was a, a very interesting relationship in the sense that Rom uh, is not seen as a very glamorous character, especially by his brother, and yet he, um, Lita doesn't seem to think that at all, and she sees beyond what everyone else thinks, yes. and marries him, and their relationship is, um, I would say, quite a unique relationship in Deep Space Nine, because they're interspecies relationship, uh, they're two very different people, and I want to know like, what you thought of their relationship and when you were acting and when you were playing her. Thank you. What a great question. Um, first of all, I'd say, I, I think you're right. It is a unique relationship in Deep Space Nine. And I think even in all of Star Trek, it's a very unique relationship. But it's also a very Star Trek message that the Dabo girl would fall for the guy who was only pretty on the inside. And I think that that is so much about what the heart of Star Trek is about. Um, people aren't definable by what you see or, 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 or by the, their exterior. You, you can't judge a book by its cover. And, and in Lita getting to know Rom and seeing his heart, which was the, just as, as, big, as, as big as the universe to Lita, and, and it really was. I mean, Rom has this amazing heart and this incredible sensibility. He has a loyal spirit. And he, he was sure he was seen as the kid runt brother, you know, the awkward, clumsy one. But he was extremely strong and smart and fun and funny and creative and clever. And Lita fell in love with all that. And so it's interesting. While it is a very Star Trek message, but it was unique to... D Space Nine and, and kind of unique in that way. You don't have a lot of other interspecies relationships where with those dynamics. It's on the other hand, it is a relationship that happens in the world. And that's so refreshing. I have to say, you know, people ask sometimes what was your favorite moment on Star Trek? And whenever someone asks that, I always say a moment from real life when someone has come up to me in real life and told me what the show meant. Those moments really surpass anything that we did, in my opinion, anything that we did on screen or in, in the makeup trailer or on set. The moments when someone comes up and tells you what it meant to their life, those are by far the best. And I have a new one as of today. Because the man I just did an interview with, I don't, should I tell you who it was with? Um, uh, sure, he's a, a, um, a man from uh, Riker's Beard. He told me that Lita's and Rom's relationship really impacted him when he was a young single kid in college. And that because Lita loved Rom, that gave him the confidence to go and talk with and eventually start dating and eventually marry and now he has children with a girl who was really beautiful who he would have possibly otherwise thought he couldn't have and that what an honor 
to be part of a storyline that helps that happen in the world and that helps not that it's I'm sorry I'm going on but this is so important we should all see each other for who we are on the inside and Roddenberry's ideals of infinite diversity and infinite combination are sim are exactly that it's so that we can see each other partly for who we are on the outside because diversity is beautiful but also primarily for who we are on the inside and know that we all want the same things we all have the same dreams and hopes and desires we all just want to be loved and we all want to contribute and be loved and respected and cherished and seen for who we are so it all it all ties together doesn't it I'm just grateful and honored and I'll say one more thing if it's okay you couldn't ask for a better partner in all of this than Max Gradenchik he is so lovely as a person and so creative and I was thinking this morning about when I, I love seeing him and I was thinking who knew that Rom Max was going to grow up and become this incredible writer that he writes all these songs now for for the Ferengi family and for the Rat Pack, you know of all these, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, who knew that he was going to become like the great creative force behind the new excitement of Deep Space Nine, right? And uh, I'm so excited because it's it's letting him have more of that limelight that he so deserves. For, for me, I'm curious as well that um, outside of Star Trek, you have your anti-bullying campaign yes. and charity. I'm curious about when you, you see, especially sort of science fiction fandom, we see backlash to things like Doctor Who, oh no, it's a woman. We see it in Star Trek, oh no, there's a gay couple. All these sorts of things. What, what should fans kind of learn from, from campaigns like yours? And <laughs> does it frustrate you when you see that kind of happening in franchises that are dear to your heart? What can we do to, to be better? You know, it... Yes, it frustrates me. It also shocks me. When there was so much backlash, and you can, you know, anybody who doesn't agree with this can just turn it off right now, but I'm going to say what I mean. When there was backlash about a woman being the doctor, I just thought, what? What show have you been watching? Same as when there was a backlash about the woman, a woman being a captain from with, when Kate came up. And, and even there was backlash for, for Avery being a, a black man and for Sonequa being black woman there was there was backlash for star wars and you just go what have you not even watched what is wrong with you that you can't see beyond color and that you also have can't appreciate color and just know that we're being inclusive and that's it it just, if you, if they were fans of some other show, fine. But it just confuses me. And it makes me think, what do you watch our shows for? Is it just for the space battles? Is it not for the messages and meanings? Because I can't even imagine that we're watching the same show if you don't love this diversity. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I, I can't get that process. I, right? I, yeah. But no, I think what your campaign is doing is, is really good and stuff like that. It's, it's great Thank to you. see. Thank you. Well, just like who knew that Rom would grow up and become this great force of creativity? Who knew that Lita would grow up to be this social justice maven, you know, <laughs> and trying to save the world with all her heart? Um, but it's worth it. And I think and Star Trek's generated a lot of social justice yeah. warriors, as it were, yes. over the decades. And fans, I think it's inspired a lot of people to go down ways of accepting diversity. I think for myself, watching as a young kid, 
you just automatically accept it. Oh, this is the bridge. That's real life. Yeah. Sometimes real life clashes with what we see in Star Trek. Well, it's because Star Trek is at its heart is and always has been about hope for a better world. It's always been about making the world the kind of world where we can all live long and prosper. And that comes at a price. It shouldn't come at the price of war. It, it wouldn't come at the price of war because war is the opposite of that. But it comes at the price of us standing up and risking our using our voices and risking our reputations and if you don't want to follow me on Twitter because I say things that support diversity and justice and because I speak against our president because he's an asshole then don't follow me but I'm going to say what I mean and that is exactly that is one of the core messages of, of Deep Space Nine is be who you are and be it proudly and when the chips are down, risk is our business. Yeah. As human beings, we need to stand up for what's right. Absolutely. Solidarity. Yeah. I'm curious, yeah. just on the, on the bullying front, I mean, we've also heard, you know, Lee was talking about bullying within the fandom, but we've also heard about bullying within the entertainment industry and the, you know, the way that kind of these workplaces can be quite difficult environments. Was that something that you'd ever experienced in your own work that kind of inspired you towards that? Or was it more to do with, you know, bullying in schools and, and so on? What was your kind of route into that campaign? Thank you. That's a good question. Um, I have been bullied. Um, everyone in this profession has. Um, bullying, rejection, marginalization, all of that is, it comes from the same very sad, painful uh, place. It, it doesn't feel good. And all of us, I think, have been through it at some point in our lives. And I realized that bullying is the same dynamic, whether it's kindergarten on the playground or, uh, you know, uh, high school uh, or relationship bullying or workplace bullying or gang membership or war or, or rampant inequality with corporations bullying their, their employees. It, it all comes down to oppression that has no place in human relationships. It's not right. It's not fair. It's just wrong. And what I realized is that it is all the same dynamic. And so if we teach people at a young age the joy of inclusion and the, the beauty of diversity, then we can in time truly have a better world. It's hard to change adults' minds and hearts. It takes something really transcendent, perhaps like great film and television can change people's minds and hearts at, at, when they're older but if we can get kids when they're young and teach them with stories they love then I may never even live to see it but I truly believe that that in time will create the world we want to live in so what we use and, and just for we haven't said the name but my, my charity that I founded in 2013 is called Pop Culture Hero Coalition and you can find us online, uh, social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Superhero IRL, like in real life. So at Superhero IRL. And we're the first ever organization to make a stand against bullying, racism, misogyny, LGBTQI bullying, cyberbullying, and other forms of injustice using these stories. So our motto is, we love superheroes. Why not be one? Why not be Captain Kirk? Why not be... Well, 
he did a few things so I don't know but um, <laughs> but why not why not be the heroes that we love on screen yeah. why not get a big high five yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right I mean and and you know so you know I'm sorry I'm going on, but this is really important. Hearts and minds are never changed by pointing a finger at somebody and telling them what to do. Hearts and minds are always changed by inspiration. And stories and music are the two things that will inspire people towards social change. So that's what we're doing. We have programs in schools. I'll just tell you a little more. You have time? Thank you. Well, I partnered with some amazing people. I partnered with clinical psychologists who are pop culture fluent. So these people have podcasts and books they've written about pop culture in psychology. So Dr. Janina Scarlett, she's amazing, look her up, and Dr. Andrea Letamendi, um, they they both, this is what they do. And um, Dr. Alima too. Um, and then Carrie Goldman, who is uh, an award-winning writer on ending bullying. And I partnered with all these experts and psychologists to create this 32-point curriculum. So it's very specific, and it, it's about building empathy and building resilience for kids who have been bullied, but building empathy for their peers and saying, look, be nice, be kind. We all want the same thing. No one gets any... Even if you did get further in life, it, no one... It, it's it, If you are... If you are bullying someone, it's because you're hurting inside. So what's going on with that? And let's get to the root of those problems, right? We have one more motto, I'll say. Hurt people hurt people, and healed people heal people. So I want to say this to anyone out there who has been bullied. It was never your fault. It's always, always about the bully. So you can just take that and go, you know what? That is not mine. It's like someone handing you a piece of shit. Is that yours? No. You don't have to take it. You don't have to eat it. It's not yours. It has nothing to do with you. And just know that it has to do with them. And you are beautiful and strong. And you have every right to be exactly who you are. I don't, so, know, I, don't, I don't know how we follow that. Thank you. Well, I, I will say that in the bring it back to the personal stories now, because I was going to ask some similar questions. But um, there is a little bit of, uh, so when my wife and I got together in 2004, my wife is not a Trekkie. She knows more than the average bear just because of, she's like, you know, she has to live with it. Exactly, by right. osmosis, right? And um, when we started dating, we were living here in London in 2004, and you and Max were doing this tiny little, like, sci-fi convention. It wasn't even like a Star Trek convention. And I was like, let's come with me. It's kind of like a Star Trek convention. Come with me. And she totally came with me. And she, uh, and you posted a con, like a trivia contest, right? And my wife had a, had made at the time, a, she made herself a t-shirt that said, my, my boyfriend is a Trekkie. And so she's like, why did it support me? And so like, you had me and a couple of people on stage in this trivia contest. My wife asked the question and it was like the beginning of her, like her, like accepting my like absolute oh my geekiness. Gosh, How good is that? Yeah. so sweet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it was, and it was just you and Max and a whole bunch of other kind of like, you know, actors from other sci-fi series. But I only came because of Deep Space Nine. I was like, we're going to, Alicia, we're going to go to this thing and you're going to like, you know, that is learn. so sweet. Yeah, so anyway, so it was where, a little... Where are you from, by the way? From I, Miami. From Miami. And yeah. what, so you were over here, you live over here. So we moved here to do um, a master's at LSE. My wife is also from Miami, but we were introduced. We didn't know each other. We were we were kind of set up on a blind date by my by our grandmothers who have known each other since the 50s, right? Oh Just so like There's like an entire novella here anyway. But we were, we, we were introduced. We hit it off right away. And very early on in our relationship, I was like, look, I am like a massive sci-fi geek. I'm just, and you, you. I'm just warning you. <laughs> you got to accept it. 
and there's this convention coming up. You need to let them come with me in, in like, England. In England, in London, right? It's so funny. And it was like 2004, and it was just you and Max. And the only reason I went was because Deep Space Nine is my Max. favorite show. No, there were other people, but there weren't. Right. There's no. There was the any airport. I don't even remember. I, I honestly remember. do remember. I totally like, remember. Like, it was this tiny thing. It was just you and Max. Yes. And so I went because it was Deep Space Nine. And my wife was like, all right, if you're into this weird ass shit, fine. I am all <laughs> into. And she made herself a shirt and went out. And it was so funny. So like, like when, she, when she thinks of like like the beginning of a relationship, that was like a, like a very like important like defining, defining moment. moment of our wow. relationship. And she was like, this is really weird, but all right, no whatever, girl. you go. So yeah, so I, she's going to get a kick the fact that I was able to tell you the story. That's fantastic. Yeah. Tell her I said, good job. Yeah, exactly. 100%. <laughs> yeah, that is love. Yeah, it, 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 and but now she loves later. the show, right? Now she gets it. You know, right? actually, it's so funny. Like, I mean, she would not necessarily say that she's, but she she's watched Discovery and like legitimately like wanting to wait for the next episode. And Deep Space Nine. I mean, I watch Deep Space Nine all the time, and yeah. she she's just she likes it. You know, she's into it. Right. She'll be on her phone while I'm watching it, but you know, she's there. She's supportive. Right you know? on. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, so I couldn't really follow the questions because they were all so good. So I figured I'd might as well just tell you the story. I am glad you did. There you Thank go. you very much. Yes, I. I've gone out on those limbs for, for you know, yeah. but then you find, like, you're just as big a fan as the, you know, because at one point I learned, wait, baseball, football, soccer, basketball, yeah. tennis, I mean, just like I learned all these sports for someone, and then yeah. I was like, wait, when are we going? When are yeah. we going back? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, sorry. No, no, that's true. All right. Thank you very much. Well, thank, you thank you very much. Taste. It's been thank a real you. pleasure. Thank you for letting me go on. You guys, check out popculturehero.org. And uh, we have T-shirts that are for sale that support our programs in schools. Um, just to let you know, I've been volunteer since 2013 for all of this. I've never made a dime on this work, but um, I, I, it is my, my, my passion. Um, come with us and create a better world with us. So we'd love, love your support. That I didn't, but I'm going to tell you right now. Here. Really? I can record this if you want. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so you heard it here first. I have been asked by Dean Devlin's company. Do you know Dean Devlin? Yeah, yeah, he, Superman. Uh, Stargate. Stargate. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Stargate. Yeah, right, right. Dean King. Yeah. So uh, Stargate, Leverage, the librarians, Independence Day, everything. So Dean's an old friend, and I've been asked by his company to do to host. A Discovery podcast. Yeah. Yes. Do you love Discovery? Yeah. Yes, I love Discovery, and I love the cast, and I'm super excited about this. And this is actually the first time I've told anybody on tape or anything. So you heard it here. So wait, you're a rival, man. Say it again. You're a podcast rival. No. Oh no, we're partners, baby. We're partners. We're partners. So I hope you, I hope you join us and I. Maybe we'll have like podcast partner of the week or something, and we'll point to you. And when it comes out, we will promote it. We will definitely. I would love that. Thank you so much. All right. Write about it on the on the on the blog. Fantastic. All right. Super fun talking to you guys. Ask you a little bit about Kira and and portraying Kira all these years that you've been involved with Deep Space Nine and Star Trek and one of the things that really interested me about Kira was that she starts out very angry and then uh, and uh, a very with a very black and white view of, of of the world and at the end of it she's a completely different person you know she's the same person but she's changed a lot because she's gone through this experience of learning to understand another point of view and I was wondering um, how was that like to portray. It was interesting to have to hold my ground for the first part of it because, uh, for the most part, people were uh, put off 
by her anger and her attitude. And um, in order to have an arc, you have to start somewhere. And where she started, really, although I didn't have a name for it then, I knew what the feelings were. Um, it she had post-traumatic stress uh, for sure a classic classic uh, signs of it um, and from there it's a slow unfolding you know a slow uh, getting down to who she really was but when she starts out and it really was duet that I realized uh, I went I'm I'm a racist and it made me hyper aware that you there's never a point where you uh, uh, personally where you go well I'm not a racist but then you go no wait look 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 again look three times look from a different perspective and that's what Kira made me do about a lot of issues is look two, three times at something to see where the truth lay. Um, because you love your character. You're, you're, you understand where your character is from. And it made total sense to me that what the Cardassians did was awful, clear signs, right and wrong. And I had to go, no, no. There's, there's, there's wrong and wrong. Thank you. Um, there's a lot of talk nowadays uh, with about strong female characters. Uh, there's been, you know, there's a new female Doctor Who. There's uh, some main uh, female characters in Star Wars. But really, when I was growing up, I really felt that Kira, your portrayal of Kira, was the strongest female character on television for my for my generation, for me, because most Star Trek before that, there were, you know, female characters in Next Generation and everything. But... Um, most of the casts were male. Uh, I used to do this thing where I used to count the amount of male cast members versus the amount of female cast members. And at the time, there wasn't really a word for that. I didn't really understand gender equality. But now looking back on it, your character really gave me the confidence, especially as a young girl, uh, to go forward into very male-dominated environments. And I was wondering, have, has, did, did you find playing Kira empowering or, 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 or sort of, did it give you confidence? Uh... Or did you have that confidence and you put it into Kira? I, I wouldn't call it confidence. I would call it courage because there wasn't ever a time that I didn't feel like people don't like this and I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, this is uncomfortable and I'm going to do my truth. Um, so, and confidence kind of comes afterwards. Hearing, I just heard some amazing woman tell me, you know, I... I have to, I'm a leader and I'm a leader of a lot of men. And sometimes when I'm scared, I ask myself, what would Kira do? And it gives me confidence. And uh, that is amazing. And hearing that gives me confidence. But at the time, I'd call it courage. I was never not scared. I just did it anyway. And your relationship, um, the character's relationship with Golda Katz. I mean, watching it as a child, I, I, I thought he was... You know, he's a villain. I thought he was kind of creepy. But watching it now as an adult, I'm like, whoa, this is right overstepping overstepping the boundaries. This uh, scene that we watched not long ago where he strokes her face in her in, in the office and, you know, in Deep Space Nine when the Dominion are occupying the station. And we talked about occupations on, on the podcast and how Kira copes with being under an occupied force. 
and that was pretty horrifying like as an adult woman when what's in the news at the moment it's it's uh it's something that's dealt with in the documentary um Gul Dukat and Kira's relationship and I have to say it the minute uh, Marco Limo had the makeup on he was Gul Dukat and he represented all of that uh, to me and it was difficult it was difficult to be with him socially because I couldn't I couldn't separate the two one of the things we've often talked about is Deep Space Nine in relation to uh, Second World War history, the French Resistance, the Holocaust, and so on, and the parallels there are there. I'm curious whether that kind of fed directly into your kind of sense of the meaning of the occupation, so on, whether you kind of drew on the real world experiences, or was it just what was on the in the script that you were given, you know, in science fiction, if you know what I mean? Were you kind of pulling on the kind of emotional weight of the real world things that they were inspired by? Well, what I do as an actor is I look at things in a pixelated way, meaning that uh, you look back and look at the whole picture, and if it was made of of little dots, you see the picture. I go so far in, there's not that picture of history and this has happened before, this is now and happening to me and about extremely personal issues. So it becomes those dots for me. And I think in making it personal and um, in the moment, it makes it more truthful for all those historic times. It's what people felt. Is that ever, um, like, distressing? Because I have no acting experience. Um, Duncan does, actually. (laughs) But I don't have any acting experience. (laughs) Distant past, yeah. Um, And I wonder, is is it ever stressful to act out sort of like a scene where you know something is really upsetting that's happening um does it ever have an impact afterwards i wonder how actors go home at the end of the day do you just kind of like compartmentalize it as an older actor now i've learned how to you can't compartmentalize it because then it stays in your body um but you you have to let it go and you have to have some kind of or i have to have some kind of ritual for doing that um but you're right. It absolutely affects you. Look, you you have a sympathetic and a parasympathetic nervous system, and whatever your brain is telling your body is happening, your body believes it's happening, and that's the way I act. So my body is in a, a hyper state. My blood pressure goes up. I'm fearful. So uh, it's it, it's very difficult, and it's. It can be very damaging. So it's really a delicate thing to come in and out. If you act like that, it's a delicate thing to uh, come out of those. And it's really important to. Uh, I'm, I'm afraid I didn't have the time to recover sometimes in when we were shooting the show because I was Kira many more hours than I was Nana back in those days to the point where I'd go home and dream and have Kira dreams as opposed to my own dreams. So uh, I, my, I got terribly worn down from that. And you were also, for a part of the show, a working mother as well, weren't you? So you have to balance like being a mom as well as working, which is something that a lot of women have to deal with as well. Which there was no balance. There was absolutely no balance. I, was, I constantly fe- felt I was supposed to be somewhere else doing something else. And I told myself, well, the only one who's going to really pay for this is me. And I won't sleep, and I won't, you know, 
And of course, that doesn't work. So um, it took me a long time to recover from those years. Do you have any questions? That must be very difficult. I mean, I was thinking when my son was born, my partner basically took a year off work, you know, altogether. And I know like, I mean, for a lot of workplaces in the States, the amount of maternity leave you get and so on is much less than it is here in the UK or in Europe. But I mean, you must feel like you're really, you've got these two sides of your life that are fighting each other in some way when you're in that situation, you know, and you're trying to juggle everything at once. And Did it make you quite frustrated or angry or...? You know, it made me scared and nervous. Right. We're talking about 25, 20, let's see, when I was pregnant to Django, he's 22 now. So uh, I was in an era where they could fire you for getting pregnant. And I was really nervous that I was going to lose a job that I loved and uh, my livelihood. And uh, it's, yeah, no, I wasn't, I wasn't angry or frustrated. Today I might be if some of the things were required of me. But Django was 10 days old when I brought him to the set and went back to work. And I was uh, in labor on the set. So I had a really long labor, but, <laughs> but you know, it, it was just, I wanted, I didn't want to inconvenience anybody. I didn't want anyone to notice or have to do anything differently. I didn't even want them to bring me a chair to sit in. I just wanted to be able to keep my job, have my baby and keep going. So I'm really glad things are changing for women. And, um, how does it feel to be here? Is this kind of a strange experience? You know, you come here and there's all these people who, like, know you, you know, they've seen you on screen, they've watched you growing up, um, but you don't really know any of them because they're all strangers to you. I mean, I always think that must be a strange experience. Uh, no, because, first of all, they're not strangers to me. I know what the show means, and we have that connection already. And the point isn't for them to see me. The point is they've seen me all these years, my character means something to them in, in intricate bits of their life that it, it's woven itself in there. And now it's about me recognizing them, looking into their eyes and going, now I see you. Now there's some kind of completion here. And that's what people want. So I never feel like, oh my God, all these people are here to see me. No, I'm here to see all of them. Oh, that's a lovely way of putting it. Thank you. I think it's true. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. We've talked a little bit recently on our podcast about how when we go back to Deep Space Nine today sometimes, um, it seems more relevant to the times that we're living in now than it did back in the 1990s. You know, it seems like a very prophetic show. It was ahead of its time, both in terms of like the serialization, in terms of the kind of creative choices that were being made, but also in terms of the kind of world that it was presenting. And I'm just curious whether when you look back on the work that you did, you know, 20 odd years ago, does how you feel about it change with the passage of time and with kind of changes in the real world? You know, do you, do you see it in a different way in any way? No. I think the, the other people's perspectives of it have changed, but mine haven't. I, I always saw it as so incredibly truthful. And, uh, and I feel like people are able to catch up. For one thing, the serialization was tough. If you missed it on TV... That was it. You didn't know what was happening. That's frustrating. And now that it's on Netflix and you can stream it, that's perfect. That That is the way it should be seen. Well, thank you very much. I don't want to take up much more of your You're time. You're so welcome. But My thank pleasure. you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate talking to you. You bet. 
Akira was something like I hadn't seen a female character like that on TV at that kind of age. You know, someone that had short hair, military background. Hadn't seen aliens yet. So Kira was like my first entryway into like strong female character. You know, we'd seen similar things on Star Trek, but not quite like Kira. What was it like for you building that character up? How much of it was your influence and how much was it kind of the writers and that collaboration? Uh, when I read the audition, I thought they'd made a mistake that it was actually for a male character because there was no talk of me being connected to another male, which were the roles that I was used to. I was a victim or a girlfriend or a wife or a mother or a murderess, <laughs> that, that too. Um, but not this well-rounded, professional person with a past. So uh, I had a very specific, once I realized it was, it, they correctly sent the audition to me, I decided very fast who she was and where she was and it, was, it felt very close to my heart. And I walked in and I was that person from the moment I walked into the audition. So from that audition, they, we kind of melded the words and who Kira was going to be melded because they chose my way. You know, they could have chosen someone else's way with the words. So it, it, it was a marriage from then on. Um, I, I mean, I just gotta say that since I started watching this when I was 12, and um, and Kira was from the beginning. I think a character really. I was I was raised by very strong. My grandmother was a very large kind of figure in my household, so I was always kind of very attracted to these like, very strong female characters. And Kira is my number one Star Trek character, and it always has been. Uh, in fact, we have a dog, which I said to the guys I was going to show you, named Kira. And she is... Uh, a bitch. Uh, no, she's the best. That's her. Oh! And she's, she's oh. this gorgeous Frenchie, and she's named Kira. I and, love it. And, and I tell my kids, I mean, kids are a little bit mixed, but I have six-year-old twins, and I always say to them, when you're older, we'll watch Free Freestyle, and you'll understand why, why, why Kira is named I Kira, and why it's my favorite character. But, aside from that... Looking back on the legacy of the show, looking back on the legacy of your character in particular, what's the one thing that, or at least one of the things that you're most proud of that you said, you know, that was a good day for it. that's amazing, and I am proud that 25 years later, this one thing resonates there with you. There's a lot, but there's one seemingly silly thing that uh, it immediately pops into my head when you say that, and it's Kira eating porridge. Because again, at the time, yeah. women picked at food. Women weren't supposed to be hungry. Right. Um, you know, there was a way to eat and be polite and talk and look attractive. And I made a choice that she was hungry and she ate. And it didn't matter who was talking to her, if her mouth was full, her mouth was full. Right. But um, she had an appetite, an appetite for life, for truth, for sex, right. for food. Right. And uh, I made that choice very uh, consciously. Right. And so I'm. That's that's what pops into my head. Did you care eating porridge? Eating porridge and enjoying it. Right. Just be on a T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Wait. So um, I was wondering if I could ask you a little bit about Odo and Kira's relationship because uh, it's some people love it, some people don't. I always thought it was kind of nice that they became friends and then eventually became lovers and I thought that was quite realistic and I was wondering were you 
actually supportive of that right at the beginning or did you feel like it was a strange like detour that you didn't see coming I I wasn't uh, a fan of it um it, mostly because at the time again it was really the typical thing you know it was it, it, it was like the sitcom thing friends and there's a tension and what is it oh they're sexually attracted to each other and I really would have loved for a woman to be able to be friends with a man and have it just be a deep love that didn't have to do with sex uh, also I would have loved to have had a relationship with uh, an alien that wasn't so humanistic. Um, I, I, I always had a problem with my leading men on the show, really, because I always thought, you know, it was the Times idea of a good-looking guy, or it was a main character. And it would have been so nice if it was someone, you know, just off the, 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 the lizard guy off the promenade. It's like, no, that's who I happen to want. Yeah, mourn. Right, exactly. Yeah. Because there is a moment in the show when Jadzia and, uh, is reconnecting with one of her previous partners who's now in a body of a woman. And both of us are watching that episode and we noticed that Kira really doesn't see, like, she doesn't see gender in the same way as other people. She was sort of questioning it, sort of saying, like, what's wrong with them being together? And so we sort of thought perhaps maybe Kira was just much more open-minded than a lot of other characters in terms of relationships. And yet the, the men, the, 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 the males that she chose were these, you know, big-chested guys. Uh, it, uh, it, it made sense uh, because they, they were emotional connections for her. But I, I would have preferred it if it had been someone a little more surprising. The lizard guy from the promenade. The lizard guy. Yeah, why not him? I've, I've heard quite a few fans say that because of what we saw in the mirror universe, that actually they assumed that Kira in the prime universe was bisexual and we just never saw her with a woman. So I guess that would again play into these kind of different possibilities. But well, I was wondering it, what... It, I, I'll, I'll tell you my feeling about that. It, it, and a lot of people made the assumption that I was gay. Right. As if in the spectrum, you know, first of all... I need to be labeled yeah. or claimed and that in the spectrum of being female if you have any kind of uh, aggression or passion or you know or, or short hair oh you're one of those and I, I I wasn't I didn't want to be associated with any pack mentality you know I, I really would love it if we and I understand support systems, but at a at some point, if we can all just be the individual we are on the spectrum, whatever it is, yep. and it'd be cool, that would be wonderful. What was it like for you playing the mirror version of Kira the Intendant? Because I feel like when we look at Discovery, and Discovery spent almost half their first season in the mirror universe. Oh, wow. And I feel like a lot of it actually almost stemmed from that character in particular you know yeah. partly the kind of iconography of the mirror universe but it's definitely all the kind of sexuality and all the kind of sex and power games going on you can trace back to that one character in Deep Space Nine and the way that you played it I'm kind of curious what was that like for you getting that script and thinking wow this is different from every other day at work do you know what I mean I'm, I'm playing something different here. it was such an intellectual exercise because I had to flip her she was the flipped version of Kira. So Kira was, you know, to me, she was a little bit Joan of Arkish. I think she would have gladly uh, given her life for what she believed in. So the the 
the intendant was a true narcissist. And that was another thing. She wasn't in love with Kira because it was another woman. She was in love with Kira because she looked just like her. And it was everything came back to her. It was all about her. And that was like, okay, now wait a minute, I've got to... It was a constant shift of what does a narcissist feel in this in this situation? How? You know, it's interesting. When you love something, especially as a kid, you're really it's really hard, I think, to kind of go back and, and critique it. And and to me, Deep Space Nine is almost perfect, right? And one of the things to me that always that I always kinda of kinda of, if I was Ira and I could go back and change it. Yeah. The fact that Kira that the final duel is not between Kira and Dukat. Even as a kid, I was like, it needed to be Kira and Dukat. You and me both. <laughs> and I just, you like, and me both. Does it reflecting on it being like 25 years, yeah. doing a documentary, looking back on it, does it bring up that kind of eye of like, oh, I wish that had maybe been changed or yeah. sitting and reflecting on something and, oh, I wish that had been different, you know, no, whether that, lovers that or that. was in the moment. That mm -hmm. was in the moment. It was like, it needs to be me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you deserve it. Yeah. yeah. She deserves that. Yeah, but he yeah. was number yeah. one on the call sheet and, yeah. and his, his, it needed to be dealt with. Yeah, yeah. He needed to have a real ending because right. they were, they were not killing him. They were, yeah. Deifying him, I guess. Do you think that kind of relationship is a bit was ahead of its time, and what we're kind of seeing now that that this strong female character resisting that was about resistance facing off against sort of a kind of totalitarian fascist sort of dictator who oversaw her, kind of her homeland and oppressed rights? Do you sort of see a lot of Kira in kind of a lot of kind of the women's marches today, kind of a lot of the resistance kind of movement in America? Yeah, and and it's amazing to me. It's amazing to me some of the things that I imagined playing Kira because of course I just kind of poofed this world or the world we were in then and it was Kira's world um, now these young women are making you know like the Me Too movement in particular the way it was for women in the business 25 years ago uh, I'm so proud and so glad and I've learned a lot because Kira of course was there but not me not me we we I had just talked about being pregnant on the show I certainly didn't feel like I had a right to be pregnant I felt like I had to hope that I wasn't going to be fired and not make any trouble and not ask for anything and keep my head down that was then that was the reality of the time so I don't, I don't feel like young women on shows would be like that now. It's pretty great. So that's kind of like what Star Trek is though, right? It's presenting this utopian version of what we want. So Kira is kind of the utopian version of what we want women to be. We want them to be strong and to develop and to not be harassed. And <laughs> have a right to be unreasonable and have a right to be wrong and have a right to learn her lessons um, and grow have that space to grow uh, that and and there were people at the time that didn't want my character ha to have that space to grow they were like oh she's a bitch this is no good uh, and and to just go well I gotta keep going with what this is. I gotta do the truth of this character and that eventually she came out uh, grown up 
was that was a gift. It might not have happened, but uh, it did for her. But there is that sort of argument that people say women are aggressive you know like you're acting aggressive but actually if a male character was behaving that way you wouldn't see it as aggressive they attribute that they attribute that behavior as aggressive because it's a woman whereas i thought kira had a right to be angry at cisco right at the beginning of deep space nine this is her planet they fought to get rid of the cardassians and the federation are just coming in and taking over so that was an interesting what you just said is very interesting the idea that people thought that she was a bitch i really felt like she was protecting her home world right but don't forget your much younger people looking at this yeah. Yeah. although we were watching it at the time I don't know I mean maybe our views have changed over the time but yeah you're right that's the younger generation growing we up we were with, younger you know, and we grew up was our yeah. Star Trek. and that's it helped we grew up with. Yeah. Yeah. that helped I'm curious uh, one of the other things I suppose was unusual for Star Trek in the character of Kira of course was her religious faith because you know before DS9 Star Trek being very kind of yeah. it's quite sort of militantly atheistic and very yes. looking down on religion and here was a character who was a main character and who her faith was you know not essentially a mistake do you know what I mean it was something that was a key part of her right. and I'm curious because I feel like you brought a lot to that character did that come from your own background your own experiences or was that sort of just you know where did you kind of pull that spiritual side it was definitely written in and I, I think it was absolutely their intention to to have this be a spiritual character and to, and to look at all that to look at what that is um, because I mean it's one of the things that causes conflicts yeah uh, so I think that was a big part of it. Uh, not not hard for me to play or understand. Not at all. It's amazing to me, like the the influence that Kira has had on other sci-fi franchises. In fact, we did uh, Jim over there runs a podcast called Trek Ranks, where he ranks five episodes. Like you, we, it's like we, we talk about we rank things on on the show, and uh, he had me on for the major Kira episode because again, obviously, it's my favorite character. And in kind of preparing for the podcast, I read that Ron Moore wrote, named Starbuck in Battlestar Galactica, Kara, uh, because of Kira, right? Which I didn't know. And I was like, that's really interesting. Yeah. And, wow. And so like Kara, in, 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 I found interview after interview where he said, look, I named it Kara because I wanted it to be in the same mold as Major Kira. So her name's Kara Thrace because of Kira, wow. which I didn't know, right? I did not and know did that I. either. And 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 you kind of and um, there's um, there's a couple of like star guys on the Star Wars kind of uh, that work for Star Wars that I follow, and there's a couple of the guys uh, that Lucasfilm. They're huge Star Trek fans, right? And they talk about Kira regularly. Like I don't know if you guys follow Pablo Hidalgo and these like big guys and the story group, and it, it, it they talk about the character of Kira and how it influences um, like the female Star Wars characters as well. And, and That's in fact, fascinating. And that the they were going to name race character Kira originally, right? And and so it is like the, it is it is amazing. Like I think wow. something that Star Trek fans don't appreciate the fact that if you were a fan of the show, I think your character really impacted. I think our generation, right? Not that we're necessarily super young, but like um, and and people that then went on to do up to work in other sci-fi franchises that then carry that character with them so I think it's something I love it's amazing that. I love that yeah. that's but, pretty but the cool. Kira Thrace and the Kira on Star Wars all because of because of Kira wow mm-hmm. yeah and in fact in Solo uh, Emilia Clarke's character is named Kira it's yeah. amazing yeah, yeah. and, and there, that's no coincidence there's a direct correlation 
my husband, when we watched it, said, Kira, I bet that's because of you. Yeah. I was like, no. No. Yeah, key members of the Star Wars like story group that manage all of the film, the story and all the films, they're all huge Star Trek fans. Fascinating. Trek. And they, they're huge Deep Space Nine fans. Fascinating. Well, that makes sense to yeah. me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, I think we... I think yeah, we'll be Thank Can you, Kira. Oh, of course. Yeah. It was a huge pleasure. Hello. It's Clara Cook again. On the second night of the convention, there was the UK premiere of the Deep Space Nine documentary, marking 25 years since the show, called What We Left Behind. The following recordings were made on the red carpet of the premiere, where we talked to Duncan Barrett and Una McCormack, Star Trek writer, about what they hoped to see from the documentary. We briefly interviewed the Trekkie girls, Star Trek podcasters and bloggers, the actor Casey Biggs, the actor Alexander Siddig, and then afterwards there is a post-documentary reaction with Duncan Barrett and Tony Black. Please note that there may be some spoilers. So ladies and gentlemen, we're here at the start of the premiere of What We Left Behind, the uh, Looking Back at Deep Space Nine documentary. Tony, Tony Black, what do you, what do you expect from this documentary? Um, lots of Star Trek. No, <laughs> I hope so. I, oh yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to discovering new things about what I think is the best Star Trek series ever really and and 25 years on finding secrets really about the production of the show and about you know the world beyond it that we never knew at the time and you know growing up with this it's just it's going to be really exciting to you know to discover the series all over again are you looking forward to finding out more about the writing process and like how they develop the storylines and the, the myth mythical like arcs of the of a story like the Dominion and Cardassians and stuff? Yeah, I, I think it'd be great to hear them start talking about, you know, a lot of the the kind of things we, we talk about on Trek FM all the time in terms of, you know, the, the, the deeper themes, the deeper ideas, the character stories. Just, you know, that level of, of insight that because we've never had Blu-ray releases and the new content that we've sort of been deprived of, really. This could really open a gateway, A, into learning more about the show we love, but also opening the door for new fans to really tap into DS9 because a lot of people would have missed it you know they went they've gone to Voyager or they've gone to Enterprise or now Discovery and this is the one we want well I certainly want them to rediscover because I think it's the best one and also it's a great way of getting the whole cast back together mm. like the cast who've all gone their separate ways and are doing other projects now it's a great way to get them together we've got Una McCormack here renowned Star Trek novelist hello yeah. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely veteran Doctor Who writer absolutely there you go thanks for that lads. have you seen this documentary before I have not seen this documentary before I'm very very excited so uh... and what are you looking forward to the most oh just um, being in that Deep Space Nine space again I think um, have it, watching something that's uh, about something I really love and enjoy and admire and um, seeing all the gang together again so uh, yeah can't wait to see it you must be looking forward to see what they do in the kind of hypothetical season eight with the Cardassians, whether that's the storyline, because Cardassia will have changed a lot in that time, right, 20 years on. Yeah, 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 that'd be wonderful. I mean, that's something that I obviously I'm very, very interested in. So it'd be nice to see what, you know, I thought of that they thought of too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, are you curious to find out a little bit more about like the writing process of how they develop some of the storylines? I'm always interested in that. We've got some pretty good sort of sources of that already, but I... I love hearing writers talk about writing. It's like, oh, you're talking about things that are interesting to me. So uh, any of that, I really enjoy hearing well, about. You teach creative writing as well. Right? I do, yeah. I teach. I'm a lecturer in creative writing. Yes. So uh, uh, it, the process is really, really interesting to me. And any creative process. So hearing the actors talk about developed characters as well, and um, and how their story.
storyboarding, how the ideas are generated. It's brilliant fun. Do you feel like that writing about science fiction or writing science fiction itself is a unique experience when it comes to thinking up ideas, coming up with storylines? I think that uh, TV shows like this, and uh, unlike Doctor Who, they, they eat up stories. It's very easy to sort of lean on, uh, find yourself using cliché. Um, but so long as you keep the characters at the heart, and this is true for any story, you're going to come out with a cracking tale. Um, but what's great about science fiction is it's got spaceships. <laughs> you can go anywhere and do anything. Exactly that, exactly that. yeah, yeah, yeah. And Duncan, Duncan Barrett host of Primitive Culture. Um, what are you most looking forward to in this documentary? I think, I mean, I am really looking forward to seeing the whole thing, but the thing I'm most excited about is this writer's room uh, feature because I think, again, I mean, we talk a lot about Deep Space Nine on our podcast, you, you know, when we're looking at various elements in Star Trek. And the thing that just, you know, repeatedly strikes me about Deep Space Nine is how good the writing is and how unpredictable it is. The choices that they make, I mean, for example, you know, the Dominion occupation of the station, that whole arc and Kira... Uh, finding that she's put in this awkward situation you never would have imagined for that character I feel like again and again they don't take the kind of easy predictable route on that show they really kind of think outside the box you can imagine the kind of brainstorming sessions that were going on back in the day and the kind of uh, just insights and brilliant kind of flashes of genius that were coming out of that saying actually no we're not going to do it this way we're going to you know do the opposite we're going to do something different we're going to turn it on its head so I'm just really excited by the idea of seeing all those guys in the room together working together and hearing what they come up with because it'll be fascinating and so the the panel this morning the discovery panel this morning there was a question about how discovery is actually quite a dark show compared to other generations of Trek and other other Star Trek shows but I always thought that Deep Space Nine was quite a dark show and it's like utopia is hard won isn't it you have to go through a bad period in order to find a good period um you know what's your thoughts on that um, well, I think that just the way that, that TV shows look now, they're much more kind. They're much faster. They're much more visceral. They're much more filmic. So something like Deep Space Nine is is much more static and, and, and TV studio bound. So I think that probably makes Discovery feel uh, a lot more well visceral. Um, and, and I think we push the boundaries a lot more with television now. But it's late into Deep Space Nine. If you're paying attention, there's some pretty grim stuff going on. But you've maybe got to do the imaginative work a, a little bit more. Whereas with Discovery, we're getting to see it. We're able to sort of push TV that little bit further there. So, uh, yeah, dark as each other. Just how I like it. <laughs> and also in this documentary, of course, we're going to get the chance to see some HD footage for the first time in Deep Space Nine, which will be... Because obviously, you know, yes, we've got used to Discovery. Everything looks absolutely stunning. It looks absolutely beautiful. DS9, you know, at the time, really groundbreaking visually and so on. But nowadays, you know, especially if you're watching your remastered TOS, you're watching your remastered Next Gen, it can be frustrating watching those episodes. And, you, you know, you can see the, the beautiful work that's gone into it, but at the same time, what we've got is not of that quality, you know, visually. It's or muffled exactly, a little bit, blurry and, yeah. yeah, yeah. So definitely I'm really looking forward to seeing, you know, how they've managed, what they managed to do with that, with the money that they've generated to do some of the HD work and uh, to really see that show kind of popping you know, bringing it into the kind of 21st century. So, Tony, they, there's some rumours going around that they're actually going to address a possible season eight. So this will be like a season on from the season seven, which is when Deep Space Nine finished. What would you have hoped for with a season eight? To not have one. No, <laughs> I love the ending, though. I love, yeah, you know, a good, it's a good ending. I, I love that Deep Space Nine has a beginning, a middle and an end. And it, and it almost feels like it's... I don't understand, you know, the, the novels did that, the continuation novels and things like that took those, and they, they've genuinely been great, but I don't know, I think, I suppose if, if I had to say, I would want there to be a new approach 
I wouldn't want the standard things necessarily that, that might have been done. Don't bring Cisco back necessarily, you know. Have a new new people in charge, new mission statement, maybe even a new corner of space, you know, and really just do, if anything, a sequel, not just a continuation, really. Um, so that's probably not the answer everyone wants to hear it. <laughs> but See, I sort of feel like, I, I, I don't know if it, like for me it doesn't have to be a story all about Cisco coming back or whatever. I would... I would feel reassured to know that he did come back at some point because I know what you mean. I think, um, yes, DS9 ended very beautifully. It was a fantastic ending, but it did leave that big question mark, you know, what, what, what is going to happen next? And, it, and it, it is kind of a cliffhanger and it's a sort of emotional cliffhanger in a way. And even, and I know in the novels that has been addressed, I think he does come back, right? But I was thinking even, say, in the Captain Picard show, they could slot in like a, just an offhand line about you know, and then there was you know the time the emissary came back. Was oh, it, you know, just some, something it. just it's, to let us know it hasn't been forgotten up. about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or even yeah, he pops up himself. Yeah, yeah. But even without him popping up, you can yeah. kind of because he's such an iconic figure. If you have any kind of Bajoran storyline or any Bajoran characters, yeah, what happened to the emissary? It's got to be a huge kind of yeah. cultural event, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, and absolutely. you know, yeah. it would be interesting to see what the ramifications of that are because yeah. that story isn't ended necessarily. No stories really. And what do you think, though, in general? I mean, if you if you had the writers' room and you had the TV budget and everything, what would you what would you do? Oh, Cardassians! <laughs> well, I was at your talk this morning, so it doesn't surprise me yeah, really. I, just, I, I found what I love to do, and I'd happily do. Like I said, the Star Trek Cardassia, just hand me that, yeah. A whole spin-off of them. Let's do a spy series. Let's do a police procedural. Just stick it on Cardassian. Garak, obviously, in, in the lead role. Oh, of course, absolutely. <laughs> no question of that. The, uh, the the person pulling all the strings, absolutely. And Pulaski. <laughs> yeah. I feel bad. I, I ordered a copy of your book, The Never-Ending Sacrifice, for the Star Trek Book Club, which I've been oh, trying to kind of read along with. But yeah, yeah. it was a second-hand copy, and for some reason it arrived like two days before the oh. book club. So I, I was like frantically trying to read it, and then in the end I, I got about a third of the way through, and I had to read something else. But I'm looking forward to getting back to it, because I was really enjoying good, it. I think it's really good. fascinating. It's, it's one of my favourites, so I, I think it's a good read. It really yeah. kind of takes the... I mean, I love it because we did a, a discussion on our podcast, Primitive Culture, about um, Articles of the Federation, mm. which yeah. is another novel that kind of, it, it's a Star Trek novel, but it kind of pushes the boundaries a little bit. Do you yeah, know what yeah. I mean? It, it's not yeah. like a kind of action-adventure episode yeah, like a lot yeah. of the novels are. It's yeah. kind of looking at something a bit more in-depth, a yeah. bit more, feels like it's more a thing of its own in a yeah, way. It's and the that was the sense wing, I definitely, exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, and with the never-ending never sacrifice, definitely it felt like this is something it is a little bit different. It is more yeah. like a mini-series on Cardassia or something. It's not just another episode. That's not nice. mini-series you know. is lovely. That's yeah. a really good way of putting it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you've got the space in a novel, haven't you? You can take yeah. years of the plot. So, yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Finish it. It's all right. It's not bad. I will do. No, I absolutely. <laughs> it's in my bag. I brought it with me. I was going to read it coming up on the train, and then I ended up... Um, <laughs> having to do a million other things. I'll let you off. I've got it with me. <laughs> Don't worry. I'll get back to it soon. So I'm here with the Trekkie girls at the premiere of What We Left Behind and I wanted to know what are you hoping for from this documentary? Um, I'm really looking forward to hearing about the writers' room process and particularly what they had planned for season eight should it have happened. I'm really hoping there'll be some surprises like some shock revelations that we didn't know about. I think there will be actually. Ooh. I think there will be. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully. So... Thank you very much. Who are you? Uh, we're from Trekkie, the world's biggest Star Trek podcast. Is that really? Fantastic. Can I ask you a question? Sure. Can I ask you, what was your favourite moment in this documentary? The very end. Have you seen it yet? No, not yet. I get to sing. You do? So you'll, you'll see what I see. We, we, we do a song that Max... 
that Max wrote for us. And I, I haven't seen it yet, but I hear it's really cool. Have you, so, you, so you've seen I have not seen it. It's my first time. Unfortunately, your character died, so you don't have the chance to see what they be doing. Yeah, but I died in the last... Yeah, they're not going to bring me back, I don't think. You died in a heroic way. If that, if that, if that Weasel can come back time after time, I can come back. They can back. clone They can clone me, of course. But that great line that I had when... Uh, uh, Worf kills him in one of the episodes and I let him go yeah. and I said well you should have killed me there's only one tomorrow yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well cheers enjoy it huh thank you so much thank you so much hi thank you so much hi so we're from Trek FM which is a big Star Trek Fantastic. podcast network know about you. And, about you oh thank you <laughs> and we wanted to ask um, what was your favourite moment making this documentary I, you know, because I haven't seen it, I, I was, uh, I, I really, I, w- I haven't picked favorite. I'd like to pick one that people have seen because they probably cut the stuff that I actually go. I love the moment when I, you know, impersonated Avery, for example, and whether or not that's in the documentary or not, I do not know. But um, I, I love. We we did it in Vegas in 2013, I think. I mean, it started, and I finished it in. Dortmund in 2016 that's how long they have been taking to make this documentary to get everybody who wasn't around all their all their interviews and Ira following us around the world um, so it's I just I thoroughly enjoyed it I, I've no I have no idea what to expect although I'm told it's it's kind of a really lovely um, discussion about Deep Space Nine from all angles with really no holds barred in some areas well it's kind of what I'm hoping for you don't know what Bashir's going to be up to in this season eight that they were breaking in the writers' room. Were they doing room. that? Were they yeah, talking yeah, about yeah. season eight in the break, but writers' room? No, apparently Esri's in it, but you know, Esri's in it. Damn. So who knows if that relationship works out? Yeah, who knows? I, knowing Bashir being Bashir, that relationship did not work out. <laughs> Bashir was just too in, not just too mature for her. Yeah. Um, I, I, it, was, it was fun. It's really nice. To, it's kind of finished. Kind of for me, it sort of finishes the show. Mm-hmm. Um, because there was a lot left unsaid when we when we did it, and that was 25 years ago. And um, society's kind of caught up with with the show, so it's kind of interesting to hear what everybody has to say now that the world is kind of is okay with the people who like Star Trek at least are okay with the show, and some of them really love it. That you know, Deep Space. So some of them hated it first time round and really enjoy it now. So let's see. I think of all the Star Trek series, it's the one that the reputation of it has grown. I mean, we all grew up watching DS9. We loved it from day one. But a lot of people, it was the show that they took longer to latch onto, and maybe it's taken a while to get to that. So it must be quite nice having this, you know, 25th anniversary year, having this big documentary, you know, which is not something that every series gets to do to kind of celebrate that history. And to really feel like, it sort of feels like, you know, Deep Space Nine maybe with streaming and Netflix and so on has really kind of found its place somehow I think it maybe has I think you're right I mean I, I heard something quite interesting from some TV historians the other day who were just rapping on radio about what what turned what happened what, what are the key moments in television history and they said something quite interesting they said that Buffy the Vampire Slayer back in the 90s and X-Files back in the 90s revolutionised TV because they did long-form drama, character-driven, where characters evolved and you had to really watch every episode in sequence to really understand what was going on. And that was the precursor to modern-day television. And please, everybody, <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Deep Space Nine did just that. Yeah. It yeah, came out before it? then. Yeah. <laughs> and because it was Star Trek, it went under the radar. It was like, oh, that's Star Trek. Star Trek couldn't possibly have an influence on the history of television and what we do now with drama. 
So I would credit Stephen Ira Burr and Michael Pillar with changing drama and to give us what we have today where we have binge TV which is all based on linear through lines, long arcs, deep character, uh, excavation uh, archaeological drama uh, of the first rate so this will always be an unsung hero and I'm really relaxed about that but it's, it, is an, it is a hero it's also not just serialisation in terms of plot but in terms of character because I mean compared to previous Star Trek I guess with the original series you got it in the films you got kind of character development but even with Next Gen there wasn't necessarily that much character development going on Bashir is a character who is very different in the final seasons from how he was to begin with you know he's grown he's matured and he's the character who I think a lot of people kind of grew to love as he grew up somehow was that something you were kind of aware of when you started on DS9 that they had a kind of plan for where this character was going or did it all come about I think there was an element of improvisation because it was such new territory. I think we sort of stumbled upon the idea that there was a sort of there was gold in this character because God knows the producers were trying very hard to protect me from being fired in the first three years, right. and the studio were very adamant. But they gave up in the end because they didn't give a shit about the Express. So they were like, "I do whatever you guys want." What ended up happening is probably one of the most beautifully and I can't take credit for this one of the most beautifully developed characters on television even today because generally young actors who evolve are discarded because it's assumed the audience won't like them once they grow old and child actors famously never make it beyond their 18th year but people stuck with a juvenile Bashir all the way through to a very mature quite dangerous Bashir by the end of he you know you imagine you know he's capable messing you up if, if, if he wants to or t- having dealing with problems of serious kind having made huge mistakes along the way killed lots of people by mistake <laughs> as a doctor you know really serious issues that doctors actually have to live with I'm so proud of what those guys have done um, with the show and that's just from my character point of view I haven't met a character and I've done a fair amount of film and television over the 20 years in, in the interim that is anything like as well drawn as the little Bashir was, who ended up being quite formidable Bashir. We were just recently recording an episode on past tense, the two parts where Bashir yeah, and Cisco go yeah. back to what's only like five or six years away from us now. Absolutely. And our world sort of feels like it's and it going was dystopia. In that but that seemed to me like almost the moment where Bashir started to change because even at the beginning of that episode he's very kind of naive still but he grows so much just in the space of that hour and a half really and then from then onwards it's like okay we've seen a different side of it somehow yeah well it's like a real person in the sense that there is only one day that you can probably everybody can point to where we learn politics mm. where we in- inherit social conscience and past tense in a sense was where Bashir inherited a social context oh my god there's more to life than just me doing the stuff I have fun doing (laughs) that other people suffer as a result of other people's actions that was a turning moment for everybody on the show and it's the first time as actors we all noticed that we're like oh my god we've devoted a two-parter to this so it must be kind of special it's not Christmas time Uh, and uh, (laughs) so we better read the script again and figure out what's going on and we had some great directors and we all knew that this was whether people like the show as an entertainment or not it was unashamedly unStar Trekky contemporary social issues. Uh, with uh, and obviously a contemporary social issue will always come back to haunt you. You only have to wait three years before the same problem yeah. that we exist with now is going to come back. Yeah. 
Does it you, sound crazy, finally, just about the 25-year thing? I mean, that it's been 25 years since this all started. When you, when you say crazy. that, you think about it. It is crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, I don't feel... I am 52, but I just don't feel that far away from Bashir, probably because I, the things I learned as an actor through playing that character are the things I'm still struggling with, you know, mm. to excavate the humanity in every character I encounter. And I learned all of those tricks playing that cat, that guy, that silly guy who ended up being not so silly. Who, you know, the guy who couldn't get the woman he was supposed to get. And I was supposed to get it in real life. I mean, I, Dax, Terry Farrell's character, Jadzia Dax, was, and I were supposed to get together. It was supposed to be the romance of the show, the one that everybody would go, oh, and they're together again, how wonderful is that? And they just couldn't find a way to make us get together because it just was never right. <laughs> But by the end, he, I suspect if we started again, it would, it would work out. But it couldn't because it, it just wasn't organic. And there's lots of undercurrents to that show, which even now as I look back on it, which I didn't know at the time because I was only an idiot, 26-year-old, bumbling through L.A., trying to figure out how to deal with what was going on in L.A. and my life. And, you know, all my, I was computer gaming till 3 o'clock in the morning and then going to work at 4 or 5 or whatever it was. And uh, I was playing Ultima Online, and it just obsessed me. Because uh, it was the first time that massively multiplayer games were, inv- were invented at just the same time. And uh, I just didn't know that there was a big wide world out there. So I've, I've grown. I grew. I've still grown. But it's all really because of that character. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. No problem. Hello, it's Clara again. This next recording was recorded after the Deep Space Nine documentary, What We Left Behind, and includes some live reactions from Duncan Barrett and Tony Black, both podcasters for Trek FM. The recording does start slightly abruptly, partly because of a small recorder error. And this was due to the fact that we'd all had not much sleep after the excitement of the convention. So what did you think of the real life comparisons in the documentary? So, for instance, the uh, shooting and beating of African-Americans, corn film, and also the Nazis marching at Charlottesville. Very interesting. (laughs) (laughs) We're still recording. (laughs) Uh, No, it just it plays into the whole idea that it's quite it's got an interesting documentary because it's quite a subjective experience. This this, you know, further on, 25 years or anything like that, it's. It's interesting because even right at the gate, they admit that what you're seeing is a level of, you know, recollections and that kind of thing. And, and the, the point being that it, right now we're in a world where we don't quite know what's real, don't quite know what's true. Um, but... Um, Thank you very much. Walk and talk. Do a West Wing. <laughs> so um, the fact that they're, they're bringing these elements into it now means that... You have a very different documentary that you might have had five, ten years ago when Trump wasn't around, when we weren't seeing the rise of the far right, when we weren't seeing episodes like Past Tense becoming reality with you know camps and refugees and all this kind of thing. So I think the fact it's being made now means it's a different documentary to what it would have been. So it's it's interesting and very clearly they're all very liberal leaning, you know, art art based filmmakers who hate the you know the current climate. So it's you almost like arty party. I don't, <laughs> I did almost say arty party. I was just going to say it's because I've been up for a long a time. Very, no one's had much sleep this weekend. <laughs> it's also a very kind of personal, very idiosyncratic documentary. I think you know it. It, it isn't like a traditional documentary in any sense. It's very much a creative endeavour from Iris Stephen Bear, Bear, and I think it kind of 
shows his personality in it partly in the humour it's a lot funnier than I was expecting it has quite a sort of wry sense of humour partly it's just very creative visually uh, musically there's a lot of music there's singing there's kind of you know unexpected touches that really kind of lift it uh, from the kind of you know special features documentary which might kind of cover a lot of the same ground but in a much more sort of traditional uh, sort of more kind of creatively conservative way but at the same time it has all that humour it has all this kind of quirkiness it's got all these kind of exciting things it's got the you know we, we see this kind of mocked up footage of what this fantasy season 8 would be like but it's also got a lot of heart I think and you know I was welling up several times watching yeah, that film yeah, you know it, it, it really I think for us as well because our generation I mean I don't know about you guys but I, I, my sense is it's the same DS9 is the Star Trek I kind of really grew up with yeah. you know I kind of got into next gen somewhere sort of midway through but Deep Space Nine I was kind of there for the journey the whole way and I think maybe it's partly the kind of validation of having this documentary really taking that series seriously and kind of looking back at it and looking about what they did and what they achieved with that show. Uh, and also just, you know, this sort of awareness of the passage of time that this is 25 years ago. It's a big chunk of their lives, a big chunk of our lives yeah. as well. And kind of um, being able to take that opportunity to kind of go back and, and look at these things. But as you were saying, Tony, also to be aware of how this show has aged very well and has kind of survived into the current climate and we take new things from it in a way I think, I think the, the thing with it as well is that and they touch on this in the documentary and I think they may have talked about it in panels and things is that it really was a formative part of what television is today in the same way that 90s TV shows such as um, The X-Files was and Babylon 5 and things that were referenced in that documentary but it is so true DS9 gets overlooked for lots of things not just the social aspects and the fact it's you know, that a certain kind of Star Trek but the fact that it really did push that boundary there was a wonderful line in there actually you, you were talking about you know the boundaries it was pushing there was this great discussion of uh, Iris Stephen Bear was saying in the documentary how he was quite angry he watched the documentary and they were talking about um, other shows that had and how rare it was to have um, like a scene played entirely by black actors and that that never happened in the 90s and he was like excuse me you know we were doing that all the time um, but the, the, the scene that really got me was um, they had some footage because Avery Brooks obviously didn't take part in this yeah, documentary but they used a lot of fantastic old footage uh, of him and one of them was this uh, a child who asked him um, what was your favourite mission uh, throughout those seven years and he said my favourite mission was raising Jake and I just thought that really captured that really got to the kind of heart of you know the kind the heart the kind of emotional core of that film in some ways and how you know what that series can mean to people and like to me that really resonated watching that right now and you know as a reminder of how strong that relationship was and I suppose for him as an actor that that was that was almost what that show was about more than the sci-fi more than everything else that's that was the single element that was the most important to him this is this is what you got from the captains as well in the you know the reason that they, they play on the fact that he's his appearance on the captains is, is eccentric and it's, it's remembered for being eccentric but it's because he isn't really you know talking he didn't do it because of the space because of the aliens because of the sci-fi and I'm not sure many of the captains did you know I mean if you we, you, we heard Kate Mulgrew speak earlier for her it was an experience about being quite a you know, female pioneer and being a role model and things like that so they don't always they don't do it for the fact that they're in space and it's aliens and all this kind of thing he did it as a part of a social action you know important piece of, of you know American drama and American history 
and he's and he's lived in that. But he, I don't I don't think he he wants to keep living in it in that way in the way that he's the, the rest of them do. You know, that's one of the reasons he's not involved in the he's not here today. He's not involved in the documentary, and that's not me criticising. It's very much a case of the documentary is a, partly about that it's a partly about all these aspects and the complexity of not just the, the characters but the people the, the actors and what it meant to them and what they brought to it and even things like you know you, you see quite a few of the actors tearing up at various points yeah. I mean Terry Farrell talking about the circumstances <laughs> surrounding her departure from the show really you know emotionally overwrought about this 20 odd years later and clearly very angry about it still um and I think that's kind of quite interesting. I suppose we often tend to think, you know, oh, this is a show, you know, Star Trek means a lot to us as fans. We're the ones who go back and watch it and so on. And for the actors, maybe it was just a job or whatever. But it's kind of nice to see in a documentary like this a reminder that actually they do recognise part of what the, the significance of what they were doing. They really appreciate that. But also that, you know, it was a really important part of their lives. And I think that sense, you know, a lot of them were talking about this kind of feeling of community and family and so on of working on something like that together um well for some of them it was like one of the first big jobs that they had in acting i mean for terry farrell it, it really was and same with like siddha gofodil as well like you know i mean they may have had small roles before but this was like the big one that was gonna make or break them i suppose i also felt that the the whole crew like the whole cast were really accepting of each other's like eccentric idiosyncrasies and like the different types of behavior that they had i mean at the time working those long long hours the 18 hours 80 hour weeks or whatever it might have been hard but looking back on it now they sort of they've learned to love their differences as well so even even um mark alamo you know his sort of interviews were like sort of played for laughs a little bit despite the fact that you can tell that the way he wanted his character to go and the way Ira wanted his character to go was very different, you know? So I could see that, like, all these different personalities that may not have gelled together initially, they learn to work together and they learn to get along with well, each other. The thing is, though, you, you, if you listen to a lot of things, you read a lot of things about the, the, when it was being made, it was a lot more of a serious organisation than The Next Generation was. The Next Generation is famously known for being a really goofy setup where they were all mucking about and they were all having a laugh and you know they, well Picard was very serious you know on set Patrick Stewart was the biggest joker in the world so <laughs> that was a very relaxed set and then they've talked about when they came over to DS9 they were like wow these people are like really intense like it's really tech, you know craft there's a lot of craft to it they're very and I thought so I think at the time when they were making it I don't know if it necessarily would have been this harmonious family all the time and I think they grew into that throughout the series and then since it ended and the legacy it's created and how almost in adversity it's brought them together you know over the years with all the fan backlash and the fact DS9 has steadily become renowned for being potentially the best Trek series critically I think that's part of how it all came together in that way to get them to where they are now to the today and not on that stage in that documentary what do you think of the editing of the documentary in terms of the use of um, visual effects but also the use of um, animation and the way it was edited I thought that worked really well. I thought also it was quite... We'd heard all about this this segment that was going to be the writer's room, and I just assumed that was going to be a sort of chunk yeah. in there somewhere. But actually, the way they've done it is they kind of layered it all the way through, which again, I think, sort of speaks mm. to the creative 
sort of vision behind the documentary that it's not just it's not how a sort of traditional documentary maker would have done it it's a, it's a more creative more like a writer's way of doing it in a way and trying to juggle various different things and also like juggling the tone going from quite serious moments to really quite silly jokes and you know, quite kind of flippant comedy and so on um and this and it's got this kind of element of you know sort of direct address to the camera of kind of almost sort of postmodern kind of playing around yeah. with it you, you know the way that the characters are not that the characters are there on screen but that the actors are kind of very much performing and iris Stephen barrel yeah. also is performing a character uh, as much as everyone else in some way uh, in the film and turns out to be really good at it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I like the acknowledgement of things as well. Like uh, my, one of my favourite moments was the moment in the editing suite where he says, "No, we're not getting the tick for that." Yeah. For the sake, that was a brilliant moment because it's clay. Over the years, people have, s- have both said it was progressive in a way, but equally it didn't go far enough. And he's uh, he wants to recognise the faults and the fact that maybe they 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 could have gone further and could have pushed it further. While at still time accepting that they did push things, they did challenge Star Trek. But so it, it was really. It was quite um, honest as a documentary, and while I don't necessarily think everything was laid bare, I think at the same time they they wanted to recognise things that have been said over the years and how they feel with the distance they've got. What about you, Clara? I feel like you've been asking all the yeah, questions. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still in I'm still in shock that I forgot to turn on the record button. <laughs> How did you feel coming out of that documentary? I mean, was it an emotional experience? Yeah, yeah, it- yeah. I felt very moved by it. I think that I felt very moved, especially when they linked it to real world issues. I think that people tend to overlook science fiction often in terms of the difference it can make in exposing people to different um, political and sociological. Um, developments in the world and I also think lately in in recent years when there's been this rise of um, strong female characters in science fiction you know like Rey and Star uh, Star Wars and I'm thinking of even the the new series Discovery people talking about Tilly and you know the fact that she's gonna she wants to be a captain that kind of thing I think well actually Deep Space Nine did it first and I think that that was quite clearly expressed in documentary as well in terms of Cisco and the his portrayal of an African-American father. And it is true, actually, that people tend to overlook Star Trek and the change that it makes, partly because it is science fiction and it seemed like something that only fans would enjoy. We're about to go to the Mirror Mirror Star Trek party um, tonight, which is the, uh, the, the big event here on Saturday night at the Hilton um, at the NEC. So um, we're going to leave... <laughs> Tony's going to blag his way in as a oh, member of Section 31. And so we're going to go see if we can find our mirror counterparts at this party. And um, we're going to leave you here for now and join you again, hopefully sometime soon. And this isn't the only thing that's been on the network this week. Have a listen out for what has also been on Trek FM over the course of the last week. I'm having convention fatigue. <laughs> And I've forgotten how to use a voice recorder. That was good. So we'll leave our tired and confused podcasters in the mirror universe. That's all the content that we have time for today. We hope to be returning to more coverage of Destination Star Trek soon. So while we were in Birmingham enjoying the Destination Star Trek convention, other things have been happening on the network. Here's a look at what you might have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.fm, Earl Grey. 
However, one thing Everyone's I do Everyone's going to sing the song. Everyone join me. Life Force. No, I will not join you. I'm sorry. Life Force. Okay, however. Meta Treks. Speaking of character, I always found it interesting how many ways Q manifests himself, the characters that he takes on. We see him as a Starfleet commander, a Bajoran waiter. We see him as an alien captain. Uh, this this Q's is just a, man a cosplayer. That's <laughs> a man of many faces. Who knew Q was such a theater geek? The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. I felt like I was in a Vegas casino and the bling, bling, yeah. bling, like it was the jackpot. And I'm like, wait a minute, what's going on? How is she affecting the replicators and that's throwing food out? I've never seen a replicator throw food out. Melodic tricks. Well, it was definitely about a lower budget. There was no question that we could not afford Jerry Goldsmith. And later, by the time we got to do Star Trek VI, we couldn't afford Jamie Horner. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place is to join the larger conversation on the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type in Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture. That'll come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. Primitive Culture is brought to you by Duncan Barrett and Clara Cook. You can find Duncan Barrett on Twitter at Barrett's Books. You can find Clara on Twitter at Clara Jean MC. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd like to take this opportunity to thank our associate producers here at Primitive Culture, Tony Black and Amy Nelson. Tony was one of the founders of this show, and we still keep him in the loop about what we're doing. You can find him on Twitter at at AJBlackWriter and online hosting about a dozen other podcasts on everything from the X-Files to classic cinema. Amy is the host of two shows on the Trek FM network, Earl Grey and The Edge, and you can find her online on Twitter at, at Miss Amy Nelson. You're blended all right. <laughs>